Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words okay. serve you. Om Namah Shivaya. Today we are celebrating the eve of Shiva Ratri. So tomorrow, the 1st of March, is the um, great night of Shiva, Maha Shivaratri. So as you know, and as we said on Thursday, every new moon um, is a Shivaratri. So every month on a new moon night, it is the night of Shiva. Why? Because quite simply, it's the darkest night of the month. And as such, it's the best time to dive down deep deep into the vast stillness and silence behind closed eyelids and plumb the depths of the human inner experience and there discover the worth and meaning of life. You know, so when you look around and you realize everything in the world, everything that is revealed to your senses is but a shadow of truth, is but an echo of something far deeper, far more authentic and far more real, eventually all of us wake up from this dream of a personal ladder climbing, hierarchical, got to make money and win love from others kind of mentality. We wake up from that and we become earnest and interested in, in inner life, in spiritual life. And so the new moon night as such is perhaps one of the best nights to practice. I mean, every night is a good night to practice, but especially the new moon because it's dark. And where are you going to go now? And where are you going to hide? Will you run away from the darkness behind your closed eyelids some more? Will you pretend like that yawning silence in between phone calls or in between conversations is not demanding that you ask more of your existence, more of your life than just, you know, paying the bills and climbing the corporate ladder? What will it all amount to when you are on your deathbed, breathing your last? Will it really matter that you won that Nobel Prize? I mean, really? Will it really matter that your friends at work liked you? or that you achieved what you think you needed to achieve in this life? And that question of what will it all mean in the end is a scary one to look at, a scary one to answer, and it follows you like a black dog in a cremation ground, nipping at your heels in every instance of your life. And you can do whatever it is that you know how to do to avoid having to look at that question. You can eat and drink and play and have sex and run around. and You can evade as much as you want, but one day it will catch you and corner you. Now. On a new moon night, you can say, be that as it may, I'm going to stop running, I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to face that damn thing on my own terms. Here on my tiger skin mat in the cremation ground, I'm going to look death in the eye and say, so you like to talk tough, huh? Well, you ain't shit. Let's go, you know, let's figure out what this is about. <laughs> so every new moon night is that, right? Shivarati. It's a night to meditate, night to go in. But of all the new moons in the Vedic calendar, one new moon is particularly auspicious, and that is the new moon in the Vedic month of Maga. There are, I think, certain astrological considerations. Don't ask me about it. I know nothing about, um, you know, some Jyotish expert will tell you what planet is doing what and what's happening in that, Natchatram and all that. Ah, it's not my wheelhouse. But um, what I do know, traditionally speaking, is that on this night, all over the world, um, Indians, people who are not Indians who are part of this tradition, for as you know, this is a universal tradition that welcomes all, will be staying up, you know, all night on, on March 1st. What will they be doing? Well, all manner of things. Some people will be gambling and watching Bollywood movies. Uh, you know, two or three Bollywood movies will kind of, you know, they're all like four hours long, so they'll kind of last you through the night. Um, but most will be meditating, praying, 
contemplating, studying, engaging in spiritual discussion, doing puja like what we just did. Why? Because given the astrological considerations we hinted at earlier, given the power of a new moon and the deep velvety darkness of the night, and given the communal spirit of everyone coming together in the name of spiritual life, there is a particular potency, a particular, let's say, field effect that we ought to take advantage of as spiritual aspirants. So that is to say that whatever spiritual activity you do, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, this time, this period, is trebled, quadrupled. Well, let's not even put a number on it. To the nth degree, I'm sure Liam would enjoy that. I think Liam could probably come up with a formula um, that expresses some insane infinity beyond all mathematical conception to express how uh, hyperbolic I'm being now. But I mean every bit of this hyperbole that this is an incredible night. But more than anything, I hope that we can all together seize this night for the um, new beginning that it offers. You know? I'm sure that all of us have come to spiritual life um, mostly because of suffering. You know, we might have lost a loved one and we realized how fleeting and transient human relationships are. Someone might have broken our heart. We might have been fired from a job. Or better yet, we might be sitting in our office, penthouse, etc., looking out at your skyline and realize, wow, this is meaningless. I don't know how you got here, but somehow something in your life pushed you into spirituality. And in coming into spiritual life, you adopted ideals that are pretty far out, pretty intense. You know, ideals that ran counter to maybe your conditioning, your social conditioning, your cultural programming. And a lot of people in your life perhaps didn't understand why it is you do the things you do. Why it is you're, you know, ditching your friends at the club yet again to sit and meditate all night, you know, in Topanga Canyon with a bunch of hippies you just met. You know, most people won't understand why you're doing what you're doing. And let's acknowledge that there's a certain pressure to that. You know, when your immediate culture around you doesn't quite align itself to your new ideals, of course we're going to slip and we're going to fall back and we're going to regress. Of course we're going to find ourselves falling short of those ideals, you know. And now a very dangerous thing can happen. On one hand, we can break ourselves against the ideals and lose all our energy and vitality and joy in pursuing spiritual life. Or we can do something even worse, which is to drag down the ideals to our level and say that, oh, I don't need to aspire to perfection. I don't need lustlessness. I don't need greedlessness. I don't need perfect inner renunciation. Those things, oh, they're just poetic or whatever. They're not real. That's the real danger. If you fall short of your ideals, either you will break yourself trying to pursue them or you will drag them down and demean them. And the pressure of that is a lot in spiritual life, you know. And so undoubtedly by now, if you came to spiritual life, by now all of us here have made many mistakes. You know, we've repeated patterns that we thought we, we finished with. You know, we find ourselves saying, I know better than this and yet we're still reacting. Still the same patterns and reactions are playing out. The same samskaras are being activated, you know. And that's going to happen to all of us. And so more than anything, as spiritual aspirants, we have to get good at starting anew. Like just kind of putting all of that aside and saying, let the past remain in the past. It's got no power here. You know, it's like at the club, the bouncer says, sorry, your name is past. You're not on the list. Off you go. So whatever has happened up to this point means nothing to you. So on Shivaratri night, it's a wonderful night to affirm that to yourself. To say, whoever I thought I was, whatever steps that brought me here, bless them. Kiss your mistakes, for they might be angels unaware, Swami Vivekananda says so passionately. You know, so like that, you're thankful that you're here, still on the path. Maybe a little, you know, some wounds here, some bandages there, but, but you're still here. And that's what matters, you know. So the new moon 
That word new is particularly important to me. Let this be a new page in your life, a singularity in your incarnation here. You know, maybe you might take some time on that new moon night by yourself to kind of contemplate your own ideals. Because truly, and we'll say this before we begin the lecture, one of the true joys of spiritual life is that it's very ennobling and very empowering to live for ideals, to live for something a little bigger than yourself, to live selflessly. You know, because you could, of course, live in the minefield that is me and mine and I, you know, you're welcome to do that. And you're welcome to do things only insofar as they benefit you. In fact, that will be celebrated by friends, family, culture. But it's never going to be quite as fun, adventurous or meaningful a life as if you've decided to live for something greater than oneself, something that might even require sacrifice of oneself, you know. Um, and that's the exciting thing about spiritual life. When it comes to selfless service, when it comes to contemplation, when it comes to waking up at 5 a.m. so you can get to meditation at 6, um, when it comes to maybe resisting certain patterns that have a momentum in your life, those things are hard, you know, and therein lies their value. To live a spiritual life is to live a heroic life. What is it to live a heroic life? To live a truly selfless life. To align your motive motives um, to something greater than just lust, greed. Um, you know, I live now in, in America, in Hollywood, and here greed has a new name. They call it ambition. <laughs> lust has a new name. They call it love. I really, I really, um, I really love the way you think, babe. <laughs> lust, lust, and more lust. Is that really all that satisfying? At some point, you must wake up from it. And all of you have. So now, you're deciding to live heroically. And because it's hard, therein lies its value. So on the new moon night, maybe you might sit down and consider what is sacred to you. What ideals matter to you in this life? What is spiritual life to you? And maybe it's about time to get to it. You know, maybe it's about time to start practicing every day. Wherever you are in your spiritual life is fine. But mark these words. If you don't get to it now, if you don't resolve to meditate, pray, study, etc. every single day consistently with gusto and intensity, then many years from now, 20, 30 years from now, you'll be walking in some nice suburban house, I, I suppose, and you will see on your bookshelf some kind of spiritual book. Maybe Ram Dass is be here now. You know, maybe um, something, you know, see some kind of spiritual book and it will mock you. You will see it and it will be a reminder of all those years that you could have been practicing that you simply didn't because you never got around to it. You know, it's like when people say, I want to play guitar and they buy a guitar and then it collects dust in the corner. If only they sat down for five or ten minutes, sorry, <laughs> some of you just winced at me. If, if, only, <laughs> if only we sat down for five or ten minutes every single day to practice some scales, then many, many years from now, when you're cleaning out your attic, you won't suffer that heartbreak of seeing that guitar in the corner, neglected, dusty, a reminder of all the things you didn't do with this incarnation. Enough. You've had enough of this. You've gotten to your deathbed enough times to realize that this time ought to be different. No? <laughs> what is your life for? And that's the question that's being asked by Shivaratri. And let this be an invitation to all of us to answer it with gusto. Maybe sit by a candle by yourself with pen and paper or with a group of people. Maybe say it aloud to whatever chosen deity or ideal. Maybe it's the formless. Maybe it's God with form in a particular form like the Christ or whatever. Sit with that being. Maybe it's a guru. And then just maybe perhaps speak it out loud to that being. Oh, what is your ideal? What is this all for? What will you do? You know, with this incarnation. And then let Shivaratri be the first day of the rest of your life. You know. Alright. So, 
so much for preamble. Let's get to it. So today, um, I'm very excited because today we're going to talk about the dancing Shiva. There he is. Nataraja. Nataraja, the dancing Shiva. And in order to talk about the Nataraja, the dancing Shiva, the re- actually the reason I want to do it is because it's a symbol packed with symbology. That sounds like a truism. But really, when it comes to Tantra, the symbols are like condensed philosophical insights expressed in a visual. So when you look at the Nataraja, every single detail on that image has a meaning and is expressing something of the Trikakrama or non-dual Shaiva Tantra spiritual philosophy. And I think it's one of the most sublime, sophisticated and nuanced philosophies to come out of South Asia um, ever. You know, and, and maybe let's say a bit about this tradition. So the tradition of Shaivism is ancient. Shaivism is, of course, the tradition of worshipping this, this uh, symbol known as Shiva. As we said on Thursday, Shiva represents someone deeply immersed in meditation. So as such, Shiva, when he's sitting there, the blue guy meditating on a tiger skin rug, he represents the formless aspect of the divine. Why? Because the form of Shiva is shown often to be deeply immersed in meditation. Meditation on what? Meditation on the formless divine. So Shiva has plunged deep into pure awareness. And that awareness, as we will discover today, is deeply blissful. It's saturated with bliss. Nothing is more blissful or satisfying or fulfilling than coming home to what you already are, pure awareness. Today, I hope to talk a little bit, God willing, as to why it is awareness is so beautiful. What makes awareness beautiful? What is awareness, for crying out loud? And why is it valuable? Why is it beautiful? I'm here at the start of the lecture going to propose that the source of all meaning, beauty, purpose, joy, felicity, fulfillment can be summed up in that word awareness. You know, awareness is not only the source of all beauty, its very nature is beauty. And by studying the dancing Shiva, we can unpack why that is a little bit today. You know, so when Shiva is sitting and meditating, what is being represented for us there is someone who is deeply absorbed, deeply immersed in meditation. For those of you who have been in the yoga tradition for some time, you know that this is the state of Samadhi. Shiva is depicted in perfect Samadhi. To be technical, it's nirvikalpa samadhi, that deep absorption without any differential thought constructs whatsoever. So he has dropped all body consciousness, he has gone beyond all psychology, and he has now entered into that transpersonal, superconscious realm of experience known as samadhi, where experience, experiencer, and experiencing all merge into one ineffable... Here, words will stop, yes? So anyway, that's Shiva. And... Have you ever, like, I don't know, watched someone eat and then kind of enjoyed the food vicariously through them? You know, watching them eat and mm, Michael making some delicious Italian pasta and he's eating it with gusto. And let's say I'm hungry, then I'm going to be, I'm going to resent Michael for eating that pasta in front of me and not offering me any. But let's say I'm full. Even though I'm full, and this is important, even though I'm full, I might still enjoy my friend, one of my closest friends in life, eating pasta. Why? Because it's in Japan, they have that word ijiroshi, which means, it's like the opposite of schadenfreude. You know, the German schadenfreude, which means something like taking delight in your enemy's pain. Uh, Ijiroshi, I'm surely mispronouncing it, my apologies, is the opposite of that, which is taking delight in someone else's delight, especially a friend. It's like when your friend is winning, you go, yay. (laughs) Many of us don't know what that feels like. Usually when our friends are winning, we're like, (laughs) Lord, Ah, don't make me thin. Just make all my friends fat. Have you seen that meme where the cat is like praying? 
<laughs> but um, Ijiroshi, you know, when I look at Michael eating, I feel delight because Michael is someone I love and him enjoying a meal, I kind of get this vicarious joy from watching Michael eating. You know, it's, it's a kind of, maybe they would say in, in the secular sciences, a mirror neuron thing going on. Something is happening in my experience that mirrors Michael's experience. In some sense, I am being drawn into his experience. Have you heard that word entertainment? Victor Wooten breaks it down so nicely. He goes, it's to enter into attainment. You know, so when someone is entertaining you, you are entering into their attainment. Meaning if they feel like, you know, Kurt Cobain has wrestled with his grief and from that grief comes, you know, something like, like... You know, and you're like hearing that and you feel that you have entered into effectively Kurt Cobain's attainment. Entertainers! <laughs> but so that's what is happening right now. When Michael's eating in front of me, you know, I'm entering into his attainment. So he's bringing me into his experience. A musician does that. An artist does that. They bring you into your experience. Something is going on where your experience mirrors theirs. So don't you think that by looking at an image of someone immersed in meditation, someone who is mirroring to you that state of uh, nirvikalpa samadhi, don't you think that's going to exert a certain force on you, drawing you into a similar state? That's why those who meditate on Shiva, the sitting meditating Shiva, often become non-dualist, who are intoxicated with the formless, and who are really interested in states like nirvikalpa samadhi, yogis, etc. You know, so Shiva as such is a symbol of yoga and a symbol of meditation. That's the traditional Shiva. Um, when this image emerged in India, no one can say. On Thursday, we did a kind of lengthy, let's say, historical kind of investigation of Shaivism. When it came, how is it that in the 6th century, the first tantras emerged, what a tantra is... Um, how did Shaivism develop through medieval India? And we talked maybe a little bit about modern day teachers of Shaivism, like Swami uh, Muktananda from the Nityananda lineage. Um, all of that. We talked about that a little bit on Mon uh, Thursday, and that's not what I intend to do today. I'm not going to give you a historical overview of Shaivism. None of that. Actually, really, none of the cultural stuff. I'm, I'm more interested, I think, in the hard cutting philosophies that come out of this tradition. So unlike Thursday, which was a little bit more cultural and, and historical, today will be a little more philosophical and, let's say, esoteric. I want to get into the heart of the Shaiva philosophies. So anyway, it's suffice to say now at least that Shiva, the meditating Shiva, is an ancient, ancient, ancient symbol, probably from pre-Vedic India, probably from uh, Dravidian India, from southern India. He is perhaps an interjection into the Vedic pantheon. And as such, he's often given names like Rudra, the screamer, the howling one. He's seen as like an outcast, you know, covered in ash, matted locks, and always by himself in the icy Himalayas. So he's a kind of weirdo deity, you know. And as such, he represents us. Because we have decided to live our lives by ideals and values that effectively make us outsiders of a lust and greed-ridden society. You know, when you decide not to climb the corporate ladder, you can bet your mom's going to have a stern conversation with you about opting out of doing all of that stuff, you know? So the benefit of kind of meditating on the formless Shiva, I mean, the, the meditating Shiva, is that not only does it mirror to you um, that um, samadhi state, pulling you into deeper and deeper absorption, but it also kind of models for you an outcast, weirdo way of living that is totally... Um, unconscious of public uh, image, 
uh, disinterested in name and fame and entirely immersed in inner experience. Someone who's living radically by their own ideals in order to acquaint themselves with themselves. You know, so if you look over here in this room, here's a gathering of outcasts. Shiva asserts a certain kind of... Oh, look at these people. <laughs> Are you going to bring them home to meet mom? <laughs> All these like tatted up weirdos. <laughs> Yoga teachers and singers and God knows what. <laughs> Wild pack of rabble-rousing rebels, I guess. So that's the thing. Shiva models that and kind of asks us almost, invites us to own up to our eccentricity own up to our loneliness in some sense, so we stop feeling alone and start feeling all one. You know, that's kind of Shiva's invitation to us. You know, he's perfectly comfortable wandering the icy reaches of the Himalayas, absorbed in his own contemplation, his own meditation. You know, and that's kind of truly mature mark of inner spirituality. Deep interest in one's own inner experience. Haven't you noticed, when you go and hang out with people, right, and you're like with friends or whatever, haven't you noticed that you just say whatever and you might speak a little louder than you normally speak and you might have certain mannerisms that you only put on when people are around you? That's not bad. It's not being fake. It's just what we're socialized to do, no? Haven't you experienced that? It's like, ah, hello! Kind of like a thing where you see someone and you feel like you have to, you have to put out all this energy because that's just what you've been socialized to do. I mean, if you just smile calmly at them, well, they'll think you're ignoring them or like kind of brushing them off or whatever. Haven't you noticed that immediately upon entering into a conversation or, you know, to say nothing of entering into a room full of people, um, suddenly you have to kind of put on something. Haven't you realized that? And you can go your whole life like this. You know, from your workplace to your outing with friends to your home with your family. You can go your whole life um, wearing that mask until it gets glued onto your face and then you get to your deathbed and you go, damn, <laughs> what happened, you see? So that's the thing. When people feel a kind of superficiality in their life, a sense of, I'm doing a lot, but I'm not learning or I'm not deepening or I just went on this, I, I, I did a wine night where I painted and all of that. I'm doing all these cultural things, but nothing seems to be quite scratching that itch. So if that's happening... <laughs> if that's happening, that's probably because we haven't learned to be interested in our inner experience enough. You know, so Shiva's inviting us now to kind of maybe put that down a little bit and be a little more introverted, be a little more involved in that inner world, in that inner experience. So the meditating Shiva is appealing in that sense. But there's another kind of Shiva. The thing you must know about the meditating Shiva is that in his meditation, he has gone so far past physicality so far past psychology that he has entered into a kind of transpersonal, selfless state where he just cannot resist helping other people. Why? To him, it's not compassion. He's not helping other people because other people need help and he is so great and therefore he's going to dispense help and feel good about himself after. No, not so much that. It's more the case that Shiva feels in that deep meditation, perhaps, the oneness of all existence. That is an inescapable feeling when you enter into that deep samadhi state, when you go beyond body, when you go beyond mind, you realize almost startlingly, and not just like in this hippy-dippy, we're all one man kind of intellectual idea, but a real felt sense of oneness. Um, it's not so much to say that all things are one as much as it is to say that only one thing is. That one thing is nirakara, 
meaning un, undivided, indivisible awareness. And everywhere, everywhere you look, it's just that awareness representing itself to itself. So when someone is suffering, when someone is struggling, it becomes a no-brainer to help them. Almost like when you have a cut, it's a no-brainer to put a band-aid on it, right? You don't feel yourself to be compassionate to your arm when you bandage up your arm, do you? You just do it. When something needs to be done, you do it. Um, and that's kind of the bhava that Shiva um, exemplifies. That feeling state of I am so immersed in meditation, so um, absorbed in bliss, that happily I'm going to give you all that you need. And as such, we can look at Shiva and say, Baba! Oh, Baba, because he is father, because he is someone that attends to the world. So notice what's going on here for those of you who are seasoned Vedantists. You're seeing here a kind of conversation about the nirguna and the saguna aspect of that Brahman that we often talk about in Vedanta. So I'm just throwing a bunch of technical terms out there. We are going to kind of unpack it all in a very kind of step-by-step -step way. This is just a little bit of preamble. I just need to get it out there. There's a lot of energy from the puja, thanks to all of you. I just need to, while it's, while it's hot, let's come. So um, this nirguna Brahman, you know, means the attributeless Brahman, which means the formless awareness. And Shiva, as we talked about earlier, exemplifies what happens when you plunge yourself into that. But at the same time, Shiva represents the god of religion, which is that formless who somehow reflected in the all, becomes the creator, preserver, and destroyer of all things. Kind of like um, the ultimate power in the universe, the great cause, the lord of time and space, to whom you can go for prayers, you know, for help. And so in that same breath, being the formula, Shiva is also Saguna Brahman, the god of religion. You know, Angela did a very beautiful Our Father for us earlier. And one can approach Shiva in that same light to see Shiva as the father and ask him for stuff. And you know it's guaranteed because Shiva feels a oneness with you. Even though at this stage, you cannot call yourself Shiva. You and God are, of course, very different things. God is God and you are you. But God and you are both the reflection of one and the same thing. So as Meister Eckhart says so beautifully, the ground out of which God is made and the ground out of which myself is made is one and the same ground. So imagine if I had some gold, just like raw gold, and I made a sculpture of a Nish, and then I made a sculpture of a Shiva. Can you say that Nish is Shiva? They're both gold. Exactly. They're both gold. But can you say that Nish is Shiva? If you point at the gold sculpture of Nish and you say, ah, Shiva, people will be like, no, that's a gold. I don't even know why someone made this. This is a waste of gold. But that is not Shiva. And then you point it to like actually Shiva and you're like, ah, oh, that's Shiva. You see, when it comes to the relative reality, the world of forms and shapes and beings, time and space, then it is nonsensical and downright blasphemous to equate Nish and Shiva. Yeah, Mark. Mark runs the gift store. By the way, when you leave today, you have to exit through the gift store where you can get all the exclusive merchandise. It's not real Rudraksha unless you get it from us. Don't you know? We bless the Rudraksha. Golden Nish statue. Yes. It's all donation-based, but on our website, it won't let you donate anything less than $20. No. Have you seen that? Yeah. <laughs> All these ashrams in India are like, it's Shivaratri, do you want this Rudraksha, huh? Yeah. You want it, it's huh? $20. Donation base, but it's, you know, you have to do it $20. <laughs> yeah, so it would, it would be kind of ridiculous to say that the form Nish is the same as the form Shiva, right? That would be ridiculous. So as Nish, the proper relationship to Shiva is 
devotion. Meaning, is prayer, is contemplation, is the desire to get to know and to get closer to Shiva, but not to become Shiva, because Nish cannot become Shiva. There is no way that um, Nish sculpture can somehow become the Shiva sculpture. There is one way, though. What is the way? How would you turn that Nish statue into a Shiva statue? Yeah. The only way that darn Nish statue will turn into a Shiva statue is if you melt it. In other words, if there's no Nish left, then all you have is gold. You know? And then maybe that gold can be remodeled into a better form, a more sophisticated form. But that form might still be different from, you know, that big Shiva that we have. You know, anyway, this is all to say that in the relative realm, in the Vyavaharika or functional level, as long as I identify as this body and this mind, I am not Shiva. But if in deep meditation, in Samadhi, I am actually able to touch that place within, beyond psychology and physicality, then I become gold. And then Shiva and I are one. Do you see? This is why non-duality is not solipsism. We are not saying that you alone exist, one without a second. You, Nish, are the source of everything that you see. In you arise this world. In you is it vibrating. And in, and we're not saying that. We're saying in awareness comes this world. And back into awareness goes the world. In our metaphor, awareness is gold. So thus far, what we've expressed is that Shiva is both the gold and that magnificent statue of Shiva worth praying to. So far, so good. I need to preface this because we're about to get into some serious, hardcore non-duality. And whenever we do that, there is always a risk of solipsism, subjective idolism, and misunderstanding what it is we're actually saying. In fact, we don't touch science at all. All of that's good. Get your vaccines for crying out loud. All of that works. All this, I mean, I, I don't know. Who knows? But all that stuff in the realm of science, you know, what they study in biology, all that stuff's okay. That's fine. We, we, don't, even, we don't even go there. We're talking about something else, you know, all the, the laws of society, ethics, science, physics, all of that. Leave that where it is. You know, live in this world in a grounded, practical, kind of like realistic way. Someone is enjoying your laugh very much, Grace. Guillermo is saying, the <laughs> Guillermo is saying, <laughs> yeah, keep it coming. I think it gives them the impression that I'm actually funny. Yeah, yeah. So, my laugh track. Yeah, I, this is like friends. Q Grace laugh track. <laughs> but yeah, so, um, subjective idealism, solipsism, you know, it's, it, just recently someone on TikTok was like, well, this is a terrible view because you're saying that you wrote Romeo and Juliet. No. <laughs> Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet, yeah, no, I think. He did write and Juliet. Huh? Yeah, maybe someone else did, and Shakespeare took credit. Maybe Shakespeare is a theater group. Uh, maybe Shakespeare is a woman. Insert all of that, that's fine. That's not even a discussion that Advaita is interested in. You can have that discussion about lizard people and the royal family and all of that. We, we just were. Okay, cool, let that be where it is. We're talking about something else. Uh, but this person was saying, well, you know, Shakespeare, he wrote Romeo and Juliet. He, she, it, them. Um, not Nish. And I'm like, exactly. Because I'm not saying that Shakespeare is internal to Nish. I'm saying that Shakespeare and Nish are internal to awareness. And that's what I really am. You see, it's, it's a very subtle point that we're making here. The gold statue of Nish is different from the gold statue of Shiva, is different from the gold statue of Shakespeare. And all of them are internal to gold. For their reality is gold. And that's what we're saying. Awareness is gold. 
And that is the formless Shiva. So when you look at Shiva with form, actually Shiva with form is leading you to Shiva without form. The God of religion is taking you, uh, in some sense, beyond religion to spirituality, I suppose. And haven't you noticed that in every major world religion, the mystics have always been persecuted by that religion? Usually because they make some statements such as, I am he, I am he, I am Shiva. Allah and I are one. Burnt. You know, the Christ and I are burnt. Uh, actually, you can't meaningfully say the Christ and I are one because the Christ is, by definition, an avatar, and you will never be an avatar. So the Christ is a special manifestation. But you can say God and I are one. You know, and the Christ would often try to say that to us too. You, you know, Paul would say in his letters in Galatians, he says, "Ye sons of God." You know, and Paul uh, and Christ would say, "These and even greater works shall ye do." For I am going back to the Father. He would often say, "Our Father." You know, so. Christ is including us in God, not in sonship. You know, Christ is not saying you're also Christ and you're also Christ. He's not like Oprah sitting in a chair handing out, you know, um, anointing. You know, he's not splashing olive oil on everybody saying, you're the Christ, now you're the Christ. No, <laughs> leave that to some super church that wants your money. You know, it's not, that's not what Christ is doing. Christ is saying, I'm the Christ. I'm the son of God. I am the formless made form. And we are different because I am a perfect embodiment of love. Purity incarnate. I am selflessness, renunciation, and service exemplified. And you are to follow this example, and then together we'll plunge back into from whence we came, which is God, you know, source, which is awareness. What does God say to Moses, the burning bush? He says, Eheye Asher Eheye. I am that I am. Yes, Michael. Yeah, please, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you differentiate? awareness from just matter yes great question because when i think it seems like you can fairly say that which exists underneath every individual incarnation is just matter right How so is this different panpsychism kind of right yeah. like there's all this matter and matter comes first matter is fundamental and consciousness emerges from matter in some sense like the panpsychists believe that having lots of matter something kind of you know because they used to think matter um the brain matter which is the gray matter in the brain produces consciousness, right? So like consciousness is some kind of emergent property of the brain. Um, and in neuroscience, this is actually called the hard problem of consciousness. David Chalmers put out yeah. this paper and Thomas Nagel put out this paper called What's It Like to Be a Bat? And these are all Western philosophers, not at all, I mean, interested in these Eastern approaches. And they are saying that there's a big gap in the reasoning in science because the science that we have knows a lot about the brain, but not anything at all about how consciousness comes from the brain. So it can tell you about like neurons firing and, and chemical changes and neurosynaptic fibers and all of that. And it can map the brain to a startling degree of precision, but um, it doesn't know what consciousness is. I mean, how is it that the brain is coming to generate this experience? It doesn't know that. So now physics has gone a little further, I think, and maybe Yam can speak to it because, you know, that's not my wheelhouse. And if we want to talk about matter, let's talk about the people who know, let's talk to people who know about matter. So Yam, you know, Liam. Liam, Liam is here, who I think is the best authority on this stuff, and we'll consult him later. Um, but for now, let's just say, from, from the spiritual point of view, like panpsychism is a little closer to what we're saying, but not quite, because it still makes a mistake of saying matter comes first and awareness comes second. Today, we'll dispel that. So I'll show you why consciousness, God willing, I'll show you why consciousness must come before matter. You know, and, and I'll prove it in your own experience today, hopefully. Yes. Okay. So let's put a pin in that question. We'll return to it. Matter and consciousness. Because a Shaiva will say, uh, matter is consciousness. You know, Shaiva will say, no, no, they're not two different things. Uh, Vedantin will say, matter doesn't exist, only consciousness does. Mm -hmm. A Buddhist will say, neither consciousness mm -hmm. nor matter exists. Shaiva say, 
It's all Shiva, baby. You know, in some sense, it's a kind of stoic kind of thing, but we'll see. Okay, so that's a great question. We'll put a pin in that for a moment. For now, though, suffice to say, we've set up a model as such. There is some substance, and we don't even know why it has to be awareness, but there is some substance, call it gold, call it clay, and from that substance emerges ornaments or pots. These pots are all of different shapes. These gold ornaments are all of different shapes. Some of them might be avatars like Rama and Krishna and Ramakrishna and Buddha and Jesus. Some of them might be everyday blokes like you and me, you know. Um, and some of them might be objects. And it's, you know, suffice to say that it, it would be ridiculous to propose a philosophy that did not account for your basic experience of plurality. I mean, it would be a kind of ridiculous, nonsensical philosophy that told you you weren't having the experience that you're having now. Because you are. You're looking around the room and there are obviously other people here. And it would be a, a, a travesty for me to say, actually, people don't exist. You're all figments of my imagination. You know? That's not how it feels. I look at these people and I feel like there are actual presences, presences here different from me. And I look around and I see objects and obviously they're different from me. That's my experience. Today, we're going to see how we can go from that basic experience of plurality to a felt sense of non-duality. I'm not interested in conveying the concept of non-duality. It's philosophical kind of language. That's not what we're attempting to do today. Today, um, by Shiva's grace, we're attempting to actually feel into that state of looking at this world as not different from you. But notice, in order to do that, we must really recharacterize what you means. You know, so let's do it. Now we'll embark upon our adventure. We'll start here. That's the preamble. We'll start with this argument. Ah, yes. Alhamdulillah. Yes, bismillah. Let's start with this argument. Inshallah, this will, this will do it for us, okay? So this argument. Maybe take a breath. You know, it's one of those arguments that, very subtle, very subtle argument. <laughs> and uh, if you can kind of resonate with it, feel into it in some sense, it can dramatically shift the way you see yourself and others. So this is what you might call a direct path teaching or an anupaya teaching, a pathless path teaching, where the teaching alone might be, God willing, enough to trigger in us some kind of recognition. And that recognition is not like just an intellectual, oh, I get it. No, it's a deep felt sense of, oh, and maybe it's even wordless. You know, it's a wordless sense and you will actually hopefully be able to look around and Maybe it'll be a little trippy because you'll be like, oh, you know. So this idea now is a kind of cognitive reappraisal. It's a cognitive reframing and it runs counter to almost every idea we've had about ourselves and the world up till now. You know, so think of this as a surgical kind of removal of some basic idea that has kept us in suffering. And if this procedure happens according to plan, you will walk out a totally new person. You're like a lion breaking out of a cage. You will enter into a joyous and fearless state of being. That's the promise of this argument. So it's worth kind of slowing down and taking step by step. That is to say, if something doesn't quite ring true for you, stop me. Today is going to be different. I, I don't really want to just kind of like lecture, lecture, lecture. I've, that, that was that portion. Now, we're entering the second phase, second phase of, of today. And, and, and I want it to be more, God willing, kind of like back and forth, conversational, um, and we're going to test each premise. And until it is true for you, we won't move on. You know? So, let's start.
It looks like I'm meditating, but I'm actually trying to figure out where to start. <laughs> there are many entryways into the mansion. Yeah, exactly, right? So we're looking, we're thinking, how will we enter into it? How does Shiva um, propose to do it today? Let's start with this basic um, intuition. Everything that you have experienced has been experienced by you. Pretty straightforward, right? Everything that you have experienced has been experienced by you. You've never really, really interacted with anything in your life up till now that wasn't experienced by you. What about the food? The, when I'm, what? The, where I'm experiencing your Iji Roshi. I'm still experiencing my own joy. Right? Yeah, that's exactly. So from looking at you eating the food, yeah. I'm experiencing... Yeah. In my own experience, yeah. that experience, right? So this sounds like a truism. And, and on, is Alex here? Because Alex always says these sound like truisms. And yeah, they do. They really do. I mean, to the mind, they will sound like truisms. But that's because we're kind of pointing to something beyond the mind, speaking to the heart, so to speak. And by heart, I don't mean the emotional center. I mean the intuition, the wisdom seat. So follow along. Everything you have ever experienced up till now has been experienced by you. That's what it means to have an experience, to be kind, to, to kind of, for something to occur to you. Okay, now the next step. Everything that you have experienced, you've experienced internal to you. In other words, it's kind of been an inside experience. Now this we must kind of unpack a little bit. So what do we mean by this? Now I hear uh, traffic in the distance, right? Isn't it in the distance? Traffic's over there and this monkey is over here. No, in America, I realize being a brown man, it's politically incorrect to say monkey. And I notice my Caucasian friends get very uncomfortable when I'm like, this monkey, and they're like, <laughs> yeah, like, you said it, you said it, you said it. <laughs> but in our culture, monkeys are very auspicious. Hanuman. I love monkeys. Anyway, um, not to say Hanuman, but this, not Hanuman, random nonsense monkey sitting here, and there is a traffic kind of sound coming from over there, no? But attend closely to this one fact. The concept of there, the sound coming from there, is being experienced here. Hmm? That means, I'm sitting here, you're sitting there, but the there-ness of you is a here-ness for me. It's all being experienced internal to me, intrinsic to me. Even sounds that are supposedly coming from the outside. Taste. Touch. These things that we say are physical, right? We say, oh, well, these are physical experiences. And that means the body is having that experience. And I, after all, am just kind of like the controller. What is it? The homunculus? The, yeah. I'm like, I'm sitting in my body, like, and there's like some kind of Star Trek kind of... Two yeah, I'm just moving my body like that. Yeah, Cartes Cartesian theater, exactly. This Descartes kind of mind-body thing. So that's, that's what I, I'm like. I'm in the body and I'm moving around. So I believe that my body is hearing, my body is smelling, my body is tasting, my body is touching. But, and this is the most important thing, anytime my body has ever bodied, it's always been an experience to me, internal to me. So that means wherever there has been a sensation, and let's just say an experience on the level of the body is called a sensation touch smell sound whatever wherever there's been a sensation it's always been internal to me internal to my experience internal to my mind so to speak now you tell me are you in the body or is the body in you it should be an obvious fact 
You believe that you're in the body. But have you ever experienced the body outside of yourself? You know, um, reductionist materialists would have you believe that there is a brain and from the brain comes consciousness. But have you ever experienced such a thing as a brain without consciousness? Or any time you've ever experienced a brain, it's been within consciousness, no? Or at least within mind. So even having the conversation, brains produce consciousness, that's still an experience in the mind. You know, doing an experiment and poking at a brain on a table, that experiment and the so-called objective data of that experiment is internal to you, is to some extent subjective. You see why we had to do all of that kind of uh, deconstructive solipsism work in the beginning? Because this is starting, I know, to sound eerily like solipsism, and it's not. Um, we're going to go a little further and prove why it's not. What about a, uh, yeah. like a past life experience where you experience... Um, I guess it's your mind within someone else's mind or within someone else's body. You could argue that, say, it feels like a memory, right? A past life memory. That body was inside you as much as this body is inside you now because by virtue of you having experienced it internally, right? So like a memory of maybe carrying water to the Ganga uh, in a past life, yeah. that memory is an experience and it's being experienced now your internally. body in my Michael body? No, Michael body is in you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right? Yes, so yes. In, in Michael body and whatever body was there before, both of them are just sensations and experiences that are occurring to you now. So even like this concept of past life, we can kind of rubbish the notion of yeah, it being a past, because it's happening now, right? It's like now, I don't mean to be all Eckhart Tolle with you. Be here now. But it's, it's just for this purpose we're saying, the sensation is occurring now. You know, the sensation of, oh, I got stabbed in a past life. Ow. You know, like Frodo Baggins, he always feels that yeah, wound yeah. from Weathertop. He's like, ah. But that experience is internal to him, wherever he is, in Rivendell or Mordor or whatever. It's like internal to Frodo mind. So that means Frodo is not in his body. His body, the Morgul blade, yes. His, um, his body is in him. Isn't that weird? I mean, it's kind of like a radical reframing. It, it's actually quite an inversion of everything we believe about this world. It feels counterintuitive to kind of all experience, not necessarily even just Western yes. experience, just like somehow human. It seems very counterintuitive. Like you have to really yeah, you have to really to kind of work at it. That. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to open the floor because you see, it's kind of an infallible claim, right? Yeah. Which is everything you've ever experienced, you have experienced, and everything you've ever experienced, you've experienced internal to you. So, in other words, we've kind of said, in some sense, that experiencing itself is like a field. And in the field of experiencing comes experiences. And some of those experiences we call sensations, like a taste, like a sound, like a smell. Okay, let's, let's try it again. <laughs> yeah, I know. Don't worry, we're going to come at it from different angles. It's incredibly subtle. Incredibly subtle. It's like just a, a whiff of perfume, and if you smell it, We'll change our life, you know? So it's worth kind of unpacking and going slowly. So let's continue. This is the basic intuition. And it's a kind of intimacy with experience that we're inviting here. So when something happens, be with it. Kind of attend to that experience. That's why meditation is the way to understand this philosophy. Because in some sense, meditation slows everything down. It slows your internal experiencing enough, slows it down enough to really appreciate uh, what the dynamics are of an experience. And so if this doesn't quite sound clear, one thing to do is to just meditate with it, to sit with it. Um, maybe even re-watch this lecture at half the speed in a meditative space. 
That's one thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking also. Like towards the end, we can do, and there are a few kind of guided meditations that we can invoke, you know, certain, they're called Vivekas and we can use them certainly. And they're like kind of, what do you say? Um, my backup. So they're there. They're like the scripturally kind of heavyweight arguments that you can just kind of pull out in a tight spot and immediately get to non-duality. So yeah, the script, the, that, that's there. That's a teaching script, right? So <laughs> they, they will be invoked if I'm really in trouble here, but I'm hoping that Shiva can help us riff a bit. Um, yeah, okay, that's even, that's better too. I like that a lot, Liam, which is some people say, well, I doubt the existence of the self. Well, the self is the one to whom that doubt of the self is occurring, hmm. right? So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you understand or you don't understand. It doesn't matter whether you doubt it or don't doubt it. It doesn't matter whether you hate me or love me or think this is my philosophy because it isn't. Um, it's a 5,000 year old tradition. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. What you feel is not as important as that you are feeling. The content of your experience is not as important right now as the context of your experiencing. Do you see? That's why this is so difficult for the mind because the mind is a slippery thing. It's trying to get out from what it is we're doing here because honestly, if we do this successfully, it will be the end of the mind. No, the, the fucker will come back. You know, he'll, he'll come back. But um, at least for a, a moment, as Ramakrishna Paramahansa says beautifully, Sri Ramakrishna says, you know, sometimes the pond scum parts just enough so you can see the water. Usually it comes back in though. <laughs> so yeah, right? Exactly, Laura. And I would argue conditioning. It's just a belief. You just believe these things are out there. You made it up. But look at your experience now. You see, we're not trying to replace your beliefs with new beliefs. That's not at all. I mean, what? Why would we do that? The problems are beliefs already. So why would we give you new beliefs? There'll just be more problems for you. If you believe in Shaivism, if you believe in Vedanta, oh, you're in trouble. <laughs> uh, Swami Sarvapriyananji joked, he's like a math teacher walks into a room and draws an equation. Like Liam walks in and tries to show you like Cantor's theorem or whatever. And Liam looks at you and goes, do you understand? And you're like, no, 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 Baba, you are great. You are great. I, 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 I believe you. I don't need to understand. I believe you. Liam will throw the chalk at you. No, he won't. He's too kind for that. But if I was like, flip the table, you know, because the teacher is not there to have you believe them. Or maybe some are. Some are like but they're, they're more interested in you understanding them, you know, for, you, you know, to go off and like understand this stuff and apply it in your own life. So like that, we're not interested now in believing non-duality, in believing these things. It's more important that you see the truth of it. So Laura is, is right. Why do they feel like they're out there? Because that's a belief. But kind of put your belief now under the pressure, the fierce sunlight of scrutiny of the present moment. And that belief will disperse like the morning London fog or something, you know, just watch right now. Don't let the mind run away, hold it firm and see right now that all experiences that you've ever experienced have always been experienced from within yourself, internal to you. Even the experiences that we call bodily or physical, those are just sensations. And where could sensations be if not in the mind? inside your experience, you know? All right. Okay, let's move on. And then we'll come back at it another way. So next. Yeah, yeah. You know what's funny? Because it's like the way this is formatted, it sounds a little bit like a pedagogy, right? Like a kind of, now it's time to convey some information. And I'll say information and you will take information, maybe put some notes down. Don't take notes, by the way. If you're taking notes, you're doing this wrong. Um, I, I will say, well, no, you can, you can. Because there's, the, uh, to be fair, you should take notes in the beginning, 
Because in the beginning, it's only important that you understand what is, or at least just kind of remember what is being said. That's why we just memorize Sanskrit texts. You know, we just memorize it. So we have the text there. It's important that you know what was said first, then only you need to understand it. You can't understand it if you don't know what was said. So yes, if you're taking notes, that's actually a stage in this journey, which is to truly understand the teaching. But today I wanted to kind of go to a different stage of that journey. You've all heard this teaching before many, many times from many, many people. Most of you understand it. Now it's time to realize it, you know, which is to actually apply it and see its truth and live by that truth. A Swami once said, if you know the road up ahead is blocked, won't you choose a different road? That's what knowledge is like. When you live aligned to your understanding, then you really have an understanding. But if you say you understand and then act in a way completely contrary to the understanding, have you really understood? Do you know Brahman if you're still acting like an ego, selfishly, you know? <laughs> it's like that story of Nisargadatta Maharaj that we were just listening to yesterday. So he had this profound insight into the truth of his being. And he felt like, okay, there's nothing left for it. I'm going to go to the Himalayas. So he just started walking up to the Himalayas. And, you know, he lived in a slum in Mumbai, like a kind of terrible, just not a good situation kind of slum. And he was a cigarette seller in that slum. And he had a guru and you know all that. And he attained it. He attained this realization. He went. And as he was leaving Mumbai, he had this thought, wait, don't I know that all places are within? Don't I know the sameness inherent in all things? Isn't the slum the same as Himalayas? Aren't they both just awareness appearing now as Islam, now as Himalayas? Why should I go to the Himalayas? And then and there he turned around, walked back and lived out the rest of his life in the slums of Mumbai, perfectly content. Isn't that interesting? Um, so true knowledge is when you live by that knowledge. And so the goal today is to kind of maybe just, I don't know, have a glimpse of that true knowledge. So everything you've ever experienced has been experienced by you. This is actually an important point and it will be a supremely important point when we get to the end of this process. The you here is very interesting. So everything you've ever experienced has occurred to you. You know, um, someone once asked me, why couldn't there be a kind of consciousness emitter somewhere? Like it's out there, it's in space and it's just emitting broadcasting consciousness and I'm conscious because of it. You know? You're the TV. And I'm the, yeah, the I have an station. antenna. Yeah. Like some antenna yeah. and consciousness is being broadcasted. Yeah. Sure. I mean, that's a nice, bizarre idea. It, cool. It, but yeah. Where it tries to answer the question, where do thoughts come from? Yeah. It's it, just some, yeah, there's some other extra, extra source. Do you see the mistake there though? Like what the error there is saying, because thoughts come from somewhere. They consciousness must be somewhere too. It's a conflation of thoughts and consciousness, right? Because consciousness is the, what is the, that thoughts is the, what, Right. So that's the thing. That's usually a mistake that we make here, which is we conflate mind with awareness. And I'm not even talking, I'm talking, I guess, to the intellect, but I'm hopefully kind of implying something beyond the mind. And for those of us who don't meditate a lot, that can be difficult, but you don't need meditation. Sometimes through previous karma, through some kind of configuration of this moment, maybe the Shakti of the puja, sometimes by grace, we just realize this. All your spiritual practices are leading up to that one realization. And that realization, the truth, will set us free, as the Christ so beautifully said. Um, yeah, exactly. Consciousness awareness is not a destination. It's not spatial. It's not temporal. And we'll see why in just a few moments. Okay, let's move on. So much to unpack and nothing to unpack at the same time. It's so simple, so slight, that it takes a lot of kind of poking around. So from where we were, everything you've ever experienced, you have experienced. So the you here is important because it points out to you the subject to whom the various objects of your 
experiences, you know, are occurring. So your experience, we could say, whether it's a sensation, whether it's a thought, it is ultimately an object and you are the one to whom it is occurring. So you are the subject. Feel that to be true now. Search your feelings, Luke. <laughs> you know. So if I'm looking at this copper water bottle, it must be an object and I must be a subject because when I make the sentence, I see a bottle, the bottle, grammatically speaking, is the object of that sentence and the I is the subject of that sentence. Why am I being grammatical? Because Shaivism is deeply, deeply linguistic in nature. It's a linguistic mysticism too, because it argues that language is what gives birth to the world. In fact, Kali is often called the goddess garlanded in letters. She has 50 heads around her neck, symbolizing each of the Sanskrit alphabets. And each of the alphabets in our tradition are called matrikas, meaning mothers, because they give birth to the world. And that's why we revere words, not so much for the words themselves, but the vibration that the words carry. Yeah, Malini Vigayotara. It's interesting that she's wearing them around her neck, like, like she conquered. Language. Yes, she's transcended language, exactly. And we'll close with one of my favorite stories um, in Shaivism and kind of explains why this kind of transcendence of language. That's amazing. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. So remind me, if I forget, remind me to tell the breaking of the board story. <laughs> okay, that's good. Grace, I know you're on TV. Can you fix me up? Yeah. Thank you. I so, have a bag, that's the problem. Oh, give me a bit. Awesome. Okay. What flavor? Oh, great. Thank you. Yes. Strong black. Thank yes. you. All right. So um, the U is very important here because when I say I see a pot or I see a cup or I see a Rory, now Rory appears, it's important that I am the subject of that experience. That experience is occurring to me, not to some subject out there. It's occurring to me. That's a felt sense. That's true almost truistically. Okay. Then the next thing is everything that I'm experiencing is being experienced internally from within me. A cup is seen by me. Exactly. A cup, the object is seen by me. Subject, right? Me is the subject there. Or I guess, I guess yeah, maybe English that doesn't really work. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe English is like that. I don't know. Sanskrit is quite clear with its uh, tense. But um, so more than just that linguistic sense, the felt sense of what is implied by the sentence, I see, um, a fresh cup of tea. Thank you. So that felt sense, right? Okay. From there, we go a little further. Now let's figure out what that you is. What, who is that you? What is that you? The better question is what? <laughs> yeah, I see a yo-yo under the sofa. I'm there. The yo-yo is there. So there are three kind of three orders of experience that we can have. Just broadly speaking, there are three categories of experience. The first are what we would call physical experience. Let's call them sensations which like we described earlier, taste, smell, touch, et cetera. That's the first order of experience. The second order of experience, let's call them cognitions, which are kind of like inner experiences, maybe more private, like, um, like thoughts and emotions, things that we consider part of our inner world, whereas the physical stuff we consider part of like a shared world, right? Mm -hmm. So we have these two orders of experience and let's propose a third, which is the experience of not that first category and also not that category. In other words, it's an experience experience of absence have you ever had that experience but like i think we are often experiencing things that we are unaware of as well or i would say we're swimming in this like the world of causality that we don't fully understand the implications of so i think forces are acting on us that we are sometimes unaware of um okay yeah i i you know yeah yeah i know i know i think it's like the you're saying i'm, I'm still experiencing something yeah yeah not. 
exactly. 5G, not 5G, I'm sorry, but radio, radio waves are always passing through us. So surely it is something that we are experiencing on a physical level, but we're not necessarily aware of. Sure, yeah, you could say... It's kind of the third ring. Yeah, and we're speaking as the mind now, which is this mind, Nish, is not aware of what that mind, Michael, is, is thinking. But what I am aware of, that I'm sure of. What I'm not aware of, I'm just, I don't know anything about that. I can't meaningfully speak about what's not in my experience. Haven't you noticed that? I, I can make conspiracy theories about it, but those two are in my experience, right? Yeah. So I can only meaningfully speak of things that I've experienced. And if I say I haven't experienced that, that too is in my experience, you know? Okay. Okay. Don't worry. Don't worry. It, it, will, it will come through. It's kind of like a puzzle. It'll come through. I hope. God willing. So next piece. Now we know that everything we experience, I am experiencing, and I am experiencing internally to me. And there are three categories of my experience. The first is physical. The second is um, psychological, maybe. And the third is an absence of the first two categories, meaning there is a state that I experience, and I will argue daily, wherein I don't sense anything physically, and I don't sense anything psychology. What do we, psychologically, what do we call that state? Deep sleep. Deep sleep. Yeah. Deep sleep or samadhi. So in deep sleep, I, do not, exactly, I do not interact with any physical objects, nor do I interact with any dream objects or psychic objects like thoughts or emotions. And yet, I am still able to wake up the next day and say, I slept deeply. That is a tremendously bizarre observation. It means that you can have an experience of absence. That absence itself is a category of experience. So deep sleep then, and this is important, is not the ex, uh, absence of experience, it is the experience of absence. So to your point, Michael, the stuff that you're not aware of, what you're experiencing there is actually unawareness of that stuff is I would say an absence of content. But you're still, you're aware that you're not aware of those things, right? So here we might even make a, yeah, yeah, you can call it exactly, exactly, Brock. We actually would call it void. And this is kind of the disagreement with the Buddhist, you know, because the Buddhists want to say, no, 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 it's, and we're saying, well, to whom does that void occur? And the Buddhists are like, don't give that a name because if you give that a name, you'll just have another religion. Yeah, good, exactly. Good, good, good. I'm happy. No, it's, this is a kind of teetering vessel. We'll fall off of it and we'll pull each other back onto it. Please put in the comments if you can have any questions, put in the comments and other people will help you. And we'll just kind of teeter our way to the destination because the destination is going to be the train tracks are going to go off the rails and we're going to plunge into a fiery inferno and all be burnt up in that hopefully <laughs> so god willing so we have um physical experiences inter internal or psychic experiences and absence experiences and all of it is internal to me so by now we've already just through pointing out everyday mundane experiences by now we've already dismissed this cartesian duality you know by saying mind and body are only different in concept even while you teach Descartes to a college level philosophy class, even then when you say mind and body are separate, even then they are not. Because even then that experience is internal to you. Proposing the body is something different from you is also an experience internal to you. Do you see? So there's no way to get out of this. You can't escape the felt sense of everything being internal to you. And that you, um, to that you occurs physical objects, sensations, mental objects, cognitions, and the absence of those two, the emptying out of those two sets, if you will. Okay, so what does all of this mean? Ultimately, then, we have to ask the question, who is that you to whom sensations, cognitions, and even the absence of sensations and cognitions occur? And to that, let's just give the name Chitti, awareness. 
something was there in my deep sleep and something was aware that I had no dreams. So much so that when Nish woke up, Nish was able to say, oh, I slept deeply. But did Nish sleep deeply? That's the thing, right? I'm tempted to say, oh, Nish slept deeply. Yeah, but even in dreams, like I've had dreams where I'm like a different ego. Yeah. Like I've dreamt that I was Wendy from Peter Pan. And you believe that? Yeah. So like in the dream, there was no grace, right? Like when you were Wendy, you forgot about grace. Ah, good. See, this is why we should journal dreams because as mystics, this data is very important to us because when you were Wendy, gone was all grace thoughts, right? So there was a beautiful Taoist philosopher who said, I woke up from a nap. In my dream, I dreamed I was a butterfly. Am I a man dreaming that I'm a butterfly or am I now a butterfly dreaming that I'm a man? Chuangzu, right? What a beautiful, I mean, how do you know? How do you know you're not Wendy's dream? And how do you, why do you assume that Wendy is Grace's dream? Because the fact, and this is the fact, when you were Wendy, you were not Grace. And now you're Grace, you don't think you're Wendy. You know, that's weird, right? I mean, it means that Nish is limited only to this waking experience. And even in dream, there's no Nish. And what to say of deep sleep? There was no Grace, nor was there a Wendy. So when I wake up, I commit an error every morning. And that error is Nish slept deeply. Nish deeply. How could that be when Nish wasn't even there in that deep sleep? Something else was there. Something else was aware. Now, there is now here, and importantly, there is a duality that I'm setting up. There is a Nish and there is something behind that Nish, awareness. All you have to do now, and this is the critical kind of switch, is all you have to do is to see that the Nish is not you. The real you is apparent. Uh, the, the niche is an apparent you. The real you is awareness. If that switch can happen from niche to awareness, that will be the consummation of spiritual life. How will it happen? Uh, today, we'll show you four ways, four techniques. This is actually the first one. This is called Anupaya, which means direct teaching. Yes. What religion would I be if I were to say that they are actually both me instead of the awareness, the awareness behind this me and then the incarnation is the... Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, it's a hard, hard question to answer in terms of like religion because religion often Buddhists implies some kind of belief. Of things, yes, yes. Right? The Buddhists say you're neither. Um, and Shaiva yeah, says, this last time. huh? Yes. Yeah. Like what the full affirmation of like that, that's also me. Yeah, and that would be Shaivism. That that is also accepted. The Nish is also accepted as me, but I'm not just Nish. Mm-hmm. That's the experience. Like right now, I'm not, you know, this is actually a three-step kill, three-step process. <laughs> One, negate the body. Two, Realize that you are all bodies. Three, affirm the body in a way that you've never affirmed it before. It ends with radical love for one's body and mind. Once realizing that you are not just that body and mind. The problem with like love your body, love your mind or whatever. It's like the last step of the journey and we skip to it. In America, there is a huge sequencing error when it comes to learning our philosophies. People want to get to the end without a respect for the process. It's very important to kind of first realize that you're not the body, not the mind. Otherwise, this will just turn into like a self-indulgent me, me, me kind of philosophy. Western Western religions don't do a very good job of telling you how to get to the end. No, they do. It's just that those things like, for instance, um, John Climacosses, you know, talk about Western philosophy, the ladder of divine ascent by John the Climacost. Brilliant. Step-by-step is literally 33 rungs in the ladder getting you from start to finish. So Western philosophy does but, present it. But do you think it has the same kind of frequency with the East? I think the East seems to be particularly obsessed with method and, and it's all, you know, there's like thousands of yogas and, and way steps. And I think if you were to read the Bible as just, the, you know, it doesn't really deliver you the same. Yeah, it's I mean, the same in churches, I don't think. I guess going to mass is supposed to be that. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
I guess we could argue like there's cultural forces. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, because the cultural forces, like we've been at it longer, I guess, by virtue of being older civilization doesn't mean that there's anything special in the East that's not there in the West, given that we've just been at it longer and anybody who does anything longer will probably have, you know, more to say about it. Right. Um, But yeah, let's revisit that. Let's revisit that kind of, because my claim is that spirituality is spirituality, whether it's in the East or the West and texts and manuals exist in every culture and every tradition. And um, the question of what religion would I be is a question that the mind is asking to label and understand. But we don't, we're not interested in that. You know, ultimately, you can call yourself a Christian, a Buddhist, a Shaiva, a Vaishnava. The feeling of, of will be the same, which is joyous fearlessness. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. So wait, hold up, hold that thought. We'll open the floor for uh, labor. Because those are important questions too, systematizing, you know? Because we couldn't have this conversation if there wasn't a rigorous systematizing kind of process. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So that awareness, that awareness is more you than you are you because you are it more than you are you. In other words, Michael is only Michael one third of the time. You know, the other third, Michael is Wendy perhaps. And the third third, Michael is just awareness. So awareness is what you're most often being. You know, that's, that's kind of your home base. But every time you forget and you take on a Michael, you take on a, a Wendy or take on a Grace or something like that, right? Okay. Now, that's awareness. We're just going to put that aside. We'll put a pin in it. So awareness is a very fundamental thing. Yeah, like every apple is a fruit. So common to all experiences is experiencing. Um, and common to all of experiencing is the awareness to whom that experiencing is occurring. So you can call this awareness pure experiencing. In fact, sometimes it's called pure knowledge because it's by this that things are known. You know, it's like this thing cannot be spoken of. But through the power of this, speech is possible. You know, it's like saying, uh, there is no self. Well, what tongue did you use to say there is no self? Or like, there is no tongue. Well, you need to use a tongue to say there is no tongue. So he who denies the self, it's the very self of that person to whom that doubt is occurring. You see? Okay. Now, let's put awareness aside. Now we're going to go to God because we're going to come to a very interesting synthesis here. What does God typically yeah. What does God typically do? You know, so you could say God is a, like the, the God of religion. Yeah, gives right. Grace. Gives grace. God. Okay. So let's say that God gives grace. Let's, let's unpack that. What is grace? What is it for God to give grace? Name an example. And what is perhaps emerging from that example by way of definition? So define grace. Now you can put it in the chat. You can unmute. You can say, what is grace? <laughs> Amanda says grace wears yoga pants. Hail yeah, that's grace. Hail Mary full of grace. Hail Mary full of grace. God's favor. Yeah, material comfort, for example. Okay, so God's favor is material comfort? No, it's not universally no. material. You know, material comfort is an example of God's. No, the satisfaction that came ah, from good, material good, good, good. comfort. I love that. So God's grace is satisfaction because you could argue that on the cross, God's grace is to experience that with joy and beauty, right? So the martyrs received God's grace because when fire ate their flesh, they didn't cry. They prayed, right? So you could argue God's grace is not getting good things and material pleasure. It's what you want to get out of material pleasure that you've kind of mistaken. You want more money. You don't want money. You want the joy that you think money will bring you. And unfortunately for us, we're willing to sacrifice all our joy and health in order to get the thing that will give us joy, health, and time. Whoa, what has happened here? But um, no, I love this. God's grace is not material comfort. It's the comfort and joy and fulfillment and peace 
um, that comes from perhaps material things like having enough to eat or having a nice home. But it could also come from like exactly what you're saying, like uh, being without, like lacking material comfort. Yeah, and right. If, if like, that if that experience gives you satisfaction, then you yeah. can So it's it's having satisfaction from whatever stimuli this world right. provides. And grace because it doesn't really there's no way to kind of artificially construct it. God gives grace to the wealthy as much as to the ascetic mendicant. God gives grace to like the person who's burning on the stake as much as the person who's comfortable at home reading Rumi, right? God's grace. Uh, Ramakrishna says so beautifully, grace is like the winds ever blowing. Not all of us have attached our sails or hitched our sails. You know, grace ever blows. There's always grace available. Okay, let's add that. So grace is one of the things that God gives. I like that we started with that because we're going to have a Shaiva theory of grace now. And it's awesome. Let's define <laughs> grace as that function whereby God, and we're talking now about the God of religion, that function whereby the God of religion brings comfort, let's say beauty, fulfillment, mm -hmm. meaning, joy, basically all the things that we consider as good. And suddenly they come to us, like God giving us that. It seems to come from beyond. It's a very important word actually in Shaivism. In fact, I should mention to you that a non-duality has this reputation of being like, well, well, I don't need to pray. Unfortunately for you, non-dualists are like the most devotional people. Ramana Maharshi and Nisargadat Maharaj, you know, at the end of the day, they are um, Hindus and they have gurus, you know, they had both. Well, Ramana, not so much, but uh, Arunal Chala was his guru. Mountain was his guru. Nisargadath had a guru. And um, when people come to them, look at how they talk to um, devotees. They have no problem with dualistic religion. Yes, they'll try a little bit to kind of get some non-duality in there. But almost always they say that's a good path too. They often talk about God and meditating on God. And the best evidence for how radically devotional non-dualists are is perhaps in the very opening of the Avadutta Gita. Avadutta Gita, you shouldn't even say that word because it's like a banned text. Why is it banned? For a few reasons. Because it's the highest, most rarefied non-duality you will ever find in South Asian literature, I believe. And it can be dangerous because on one hand, it might waste your time. That's the danger. <laughs> the danger is that you won't understand it if, you, if you're not ready for it. You'll just hear it and be like, oh, okay, whatever. But even more dangerous than that is if you do understand it, but in an unripe way, you will leave all of your things behind, move to the Himalayas, and you will freeze in the cold, you know, because you'll just kind of get this weird inspiration. And, or, or even worse than that, you will abandon all ethics and religion or whatever. So in that sense, is very dangerous. Um, so the best non-dual text, it opens with this line. It is by the grace of God that someone becomes interested in non-duality. <laughs> The idea is that non-duality is the final word in religion, right? Another very radical text, the Ashtavaka Gita. Some people say the Ashtavaka starts where every other spiritual tradition ends. You know, so the Ashtavaka, it begins, as Thomas Byram says in the opening of his, um, what do you call it? His introduction to his translation. Very beautiful translation. Yes. Okay. So, Avaduta Gita opens with this point about grace. And some people say, if you, if you realize this, by the way, today, it will be by grace. That's why we're having this conversation after like all the puja and all the praying. Isn't it weird? Those of you who were here in the puja earlier, you're watching us like so devotional saying our fathers praying. And then now we're saying, you know, this radical non-duality. It's not by accident because grace is required to not only understand this, but to actually live it, to truly, truly live it. So let's say that grace is what God gives you that helps you learn helps you understand, helps you remember. You know, you can read a thousand books and get nothing from them, right? It's by grace that somehow you remember the book. Grace comes and whispers it to you. <laughs> but uh, grace gives you comfort, it gives you meaning, gives you joy. Okay, what else? What else? 
So God gives grace. What else does God do? Is there an opposite judge. to God giving grace? Ah, okay. Good. There is an opposite to grace, right? Um, and this is important because in every major world religion, you must account for God's role as the smiter. Yeah. You have a pretty lame God if all he does or she does or it does is walk around with a little wand with a star and go, you get grace and you get grace and everybody gets grace. Yay! <laughs> Care bear God. Yeah, little Care Bear God, you know? Hello, I'm the Care Bear God! You know? I've been reading a lot of Greek plays and the gods are just terrible. I mean, yeah, we have to account for the fact that life like, will kick your balls and if you don't have them, still will kick your balls. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell Yeah, life is like really rough and you lose loved ones in the winter chill. In the dark of night, when you hear the blood-curdling scream of the jackal, and you live in one of those rural pastoral settings where there literally is no light around you because the fire has died down, even the embers are gone, then you will know fear. And then you will meet Kali, the other aspect of God, that you must reconcile, you must understand, you know? Because otherwise, you have a kind of limp kind of God, you know? It's a very half-hearted God. And it's... Young would say you would incorporate in the shadow. Yeah, exactly, right? In a Jungian sense, you have... So, the opposite of grace too. God gives grace, but God also does something else. Yeah, Tana, today, Kali comes from this tradition. So we're, we're actually going to, you'll get that answer today. I, I, by God's grace. So remind me if it doesn't come. So the breaking of the board story and the Kali thing. Okay, good. So God gives grace, but also takes it away. Or in some sense, God does the opposite of grace, which is remove contentment, fulfillment, joy, beauty, meaning, comfort, knowledge, Allows you to not take advantage of the grace, at least. Perhaps. We don't know the motive yet. We don't know the motive. We're just saying, like, the function. We recognize the function. We don't know what the thinking is, right? Because we don't know about God. But we know from the function of God, we get good stuff. Happy. Or, ah, oh, bad stuff. I could get... <laughs> Have you seen kids play? Did your mom actually say that? like, brought you... And you're like, did you though? Were you responsible <laughs> you? for each step That's in that incredible. biological would you, process? Would you, that was the beginning. You're like, the condom <laughs> company had more to do with this <laughs> with your defective product than you. Know. Um, okay, so. Isn't that nature? Yeah, right? You could say nature. Right? So we have this idea of nature. You know, Ramakrishna says, don't be too interested in the garden. Go look for the owner of the garden. But if you look at nature, oh. you sense an intelligence behind it. Yeah. So you could say, yeah, nature is a symbol of God. There is something behind nature. What I'm saying is that it feels to me that nature is what causes the opposite of grace. Mm. Like death. So God is giving grace and nature is kind of... Well, for balance. Okay, so then do you say that there is God and the devil and they're equally powerful? God is more powerful, right? The devil works for God? Yeah. And the devil is God. You're right. There are two functions. And Zoroastrians would say, no, they're like, they're, one is Ahura Mazda, force of light, God, and the other is Angra Manyu, which literally means bad spirit. Also a transcendental being, not quite nature, but you could say his tool is nature. He uses it like God gives you grace and then life fucks it up and like takes away, you know, and like time comes and eats away at your grace. So yes, you can set it up dualistically like that, but we have to recognize that every major world religion, even Zoroastrianism, recognizes the supremacy of God over nature and the Bible, you know, it says the devil knows not for whom he works. Mm -hmm. So if you say God and the devil are powerful, you have a very strange kind of religion that's not God actually. 
it's just some kind of weird like arm wrestling match between two equally powerful beings, mm-hmm. which is fine. But um, most traditions, though, would argue that God is more powerful because God is the power behind nature. So what nature does, you must attribute to God also. Because shouldn't God be able to step in? If God gives grace, why should God allow nature to take that grace away from you? God's negligence in not stepping in when nature was about to take away your cookie is God as good as God taking away your cookie. Eh? Mm-hmm. That's what we call the problem of evil. Most theologies struggle with this. If God is all-powerful and all-good, well, then, why did the Holocaust happen? Some stuff like that. This is the problem of evil. And we reconcile it by saying, you can't cram God into our notions of good, you know? Because the fact remains that if God is that power, um, inscrutable, through which good things come, we must also say through which bad things come. Because that's our experience. Wow. We skipped right to, like, the, the higher reaches of Shaivism, which is grace. And, you know, by the way, in... In Shaivism, the name for grace is a very beautiful word, anugraha. You know, anugraha, which means something like to grasp the one. And then the opposite of grace is nigraha, meaning to not get it, to not grasp. So the opposite of grace, we would say, is hiding, actually. God hiding from you. So God's playing a game of hide and seek. When God peekaboo reveals, that's grace. And when God hides, that's hiding. That's the opposite of grace. So this hide and seek function is what you would call grace and its opposite, hiding. So what is God then? You could say God is anytime you feel joy and beauty and meaning and sacredness. What is God hiding when those things are gone from your life? You see. Anyway, there are three more basic functions and you could say these are functions of nature actually too. The three more basic functions of God though. Like what's the prime function of God? What does God do first? Great. Ah, exactly, right? The basic function of God is that God is the creator. Amen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> destroy and yeah. Chill, relax. Nice, Tana. Nice. Yeah. So we got uh, first creation, then we've got maintenance, right? So creation comes first. Then uh, with creation, there must be some power by which what is created is sustained. So we call that maintenance or transformation. Sure, like all of that, right? Like regulation, yeah. operation, transforming. And then what does God do? Like often associated to judgment, destroy, right? So God smites Sodom and Gomorrah, God destroys, so destruction, the ending of something is also a function of God. Now, we have five functions of God. So let's actually, this might be nice to note down. This is a part where it's like kind of nice to understand the model. So the first, I'll put it in the chat. The first is Shrishti. We're about to do something really kind of eerie and awesome here, which is um, God equals you in just a moment. So it's nice to kind of really take this step by step. So Shrishti means to create. Stittahi means to maintain. Stitti. Um, samhara or, um, yeah, Samhara, you could say. Destroy. Anugraha, reveal, or let's say grace. And uh, Nigraha, which is hide, or let's say remove grace. Okay. I'm being as close to the Sanskrit as possible, so I'm, like, the word judgment and all doesn't, it doesn't really make sense in Sanskrit. Or sin, or like, doesn't really make sense. More error, kind of hiding and seeking. It's so we're gonna go with that for now. Okay, so that's what God does. Is that fair? Yeah. Can we think of anything else that God does? God rests on the seventh day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I hope not. Turns into a human. And okay, let's put that down. Rests. Rests, abides. Let's just say that, right? God okay, rests abides. or abides. Okay, rest. God rests. Sure. Um, There's gonna be birds. Put that in with stittihi. That healing thing, you could say it's either grace or stittihi. So healing by way of your body maintaining itself, that's maintenance. So right now, right, you're breathing. Are you? 
Yes, yep. I think so. Are you really? You're responsible for your alveolar walls drawing in the oxygen and exchanging it through a very... Right? What do you mean you're breathing? You have no control over the act of breathing. You know, you don't even draw in air. You just somehow... Yeah, right? That somehow, mysteriously, the intercostal muscles and the diaphragmatic muscles somehow, through actually an autonomic process, um, flatten and expand. And you pray that Boyle's Law will work today. And that... You know, the air will go in. That's step one, right? So, okay, that happened. Wow, physics came to your rescue. Biology came to your rescue. Step two. Um, now the air is there. A, a very, very fine pH balance in the mucus layer and the alveolar wall regulates the exchange of particles, you know, from a one-cell thick layer at any time that process could stop. And even if that process is successful, there's a tremendously intricate circulatory system that carries that oxygen and nourishes cells. If you were in charge of breathing for just one day, the ambulance would have a lot of calls that day because we'd mismanage it. I can't even, can't even manage my finances. You think I can manage that, like breathing to say nothing of digesting? You know, there's no way anybody could kind of claim credit for breathing, for digesting, for healing. So you have to say, okay, the body kind of maintains itself. And we put that in the sittahi function of God. All right. So now we've got these five things. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely... Today, you know, let's take our time. We'll sing some songs. We'll have a bigger Q&A. We'll really take our time with it, you know. But I just want to get to the, the kind of point of the lecture. And then we can just, like, freeform it. Uh, so not to go off track, just kind of get back here. We've got these five functions. Sittahi, creation. Uh, sorry, Shrishti, creation, Stittihi, maintenance, Samhara, destruction, Anugraha, grace, Nigraha, um, concealment. Okay. Now, what does awareness do? Allows all of these things to exist. Isn't it Creates funny? the bed in which, the stage in which all of these things are put. Or you could say, awareness itself is doing all of these things, you know? Okay, Vedantins won't say this. Now we're moving out of Advaita Vedanta and into Shaivism because Vedantins don't think awareness can do anything. What does stuff is bodies and minds. But here we're saying, no, no, awareness does something. So let's prove it. So right now, we'll close our eyes. Take a nice deep breath and then open the eyes. Look at someone. And then close your eyes again. And take a deep breath. Okay, open your eyes again or keep them closed for this next part, which is notice three things happened. First, when you opened your eyes, suddenly you saw before you something. For me, there was an Emily and there were a few cognitions like excellent yoga teacher, how happy I am that she's in my, all, that's, all these cognitions, but an experience happened. In other words, awareness has emanated forth has projected forth, has given rise to an experience that wasn't there before. So looking at Emily was a fresh experience for me. That is shishti, no? It's a creation moment. When I looked at Emily, in some sense, it created Emily. Now you could say, come on, Nish. <laughs> the thing in the world is there out in the world. It's coming to you from beyond you. Really? Let's let's disprove this. The tree Very, is falling. Huh? The tree is falling. Yeah, yeah right? The tree is falling. <laughs> yeah, the tree. No, wait, wait, but wait. Um, uh, didn't we say earlier that everything you experience, you are experiencing internal to you? So if that's true, if you agree to that premise, how could there be anything external to me coming to me? 
right? There couldn't be anything out there communicating to me through my senses. It's more likely that something in here gave rise to something out there through my senses. I am not saying Nish created Emily. I'm saying awareness created Emily. That's a very different statement. Emily is not a figment of Nish's imagination. Emily is not internal to Nish. Nish and Emily are internal to that Shiva out of which this Emily came. But notice, when was Emily created? Now. There she is again. I don't know that you're there until I see you. Do you notice that? There is a kind of solipsism a little bit here because it's talking about you and your own experience. Think of it as more of an introspectionism kind of thing, like William James or something like that. Okay, so... That's Shristi, right? I'm going to give you another argument and it's about matter. So this, again, will try to prove, and this is the claim, nothing you see is coming to you from outside in. Everything you see is pouring out from you, through you, from inside out. That's the claim. Let's prove it another way. So we believe that matter comes first and consciousness comes second, right? But has anybody ever seen or verified or proven the existence of matter objectively and independently apart from awareness? I mean, that would be an impossibility, right? To say, I can prove to you the existence of matter objectively. No, there is a subject to whom that data is occurring. <laughs> so essentially what I'm saying is there could be no room here outside of awareness. You could conceive of a, of a world where matter exists and there is no subject. Where is that conception? In the mind. Exactly. You can conceive of a world, but that world is in your mind. It's not actually there. It's internal to you, right? So I can say, and that's the thing, that's the problem with these uh, reduction materialist world. You can conceive it. You can conceive that matter comes first and awareness comes second. That's fine. You can, you can conceptualize that. But it doesn't line up with our actual but experience. I think maybe more precisely what I meant to say is that I can conceive of a world in which there was matter before cognition and that we live in that world currently. Uh, okay, to fair. Say that there, to say that we live in a world where matter existed before a witness okay. to such matter. Fair. And let's test it. So let's say, have we ever experienced a world as such? No, and it would be nigh impossible to. Exactly. Unless you, can see the, unless you can see the sort of causal effect of matter that existed before. Right. But it would just be coming in. That would be awareness too, right? Because when you say, unless you could see the causal effect of matter, there would have to be someone to whom that causal effect was occurring. Meaning there would have to be someone prior to that matter. In other words, what I'm saying is, you're right, there yes. could be yeah. A world that exists before Nish. Someone said the big blink. <laughs> there, could, there could be a world that exists before Nish. You know what? There was. Obviously, there was a world before Nish. Duh. But there could not have been a world before awareness. Because to whom would that world occur? And even if, and this is more important, even if there was such a world, it would be meaningless to talk about it or interact with it because it could never be verified. You can never verify the existence of a brain without consciousness. The existence of a body without consciousness. The existence of any of this without awareness. That is to say that independent objective matter doesn't exist. What is prior to matter? Consciousness. Because without consciousness, you couldn't have matter. Matter depends on consciousness. So I'm not saying that matter doesn't exist. I'm not saying that matter isn't consciousness. I'm just saying that the chicken must have come first. Consciousness must have come first. Right? And we can prove it one other way too. We did it on Thursday. Look at this thing. Cup. I have name. Cup. Actually, I have the better thing to do is a water bottle. You can now buy in the store. This one, this one, this one. <laughs> yeah, this, this Tibetan singing bowl, which you will find in our gift store, has been blessed by our puja um, staff today. Yes. If you order now, we'll even send you a Rudraksh Okay, look at this thing. 
Now, this is a Tibetan singing bowl. Now, some people have never seen one of these. You know, some people don't know what this is. And until you are shown it, you might never have the word Tibetan singing bowl in your like life. You know, and that means you don't live in a world of Tibetan singing bowls yet. Mm-hmm. Right. You live like what is a world if not just a collection of phrases, labels, names. It's, and when you. Like yeah. Right. Like kind of. Form. Well, yeah. Form the name. Okay. So now. If I show you a Tibetan singing bowl, now you go, what's I said? Tibetan singing bowl. Now you live in a world of Tibetan singing bowls. So the name Tibetan singing bowl emerges from a sense perception of a Tibetan singing bowl. In other words, if I ask you, what is the essence of the concept? Remember, we were talking about conceptions. Mm -hmm. What is the essence of a concept? It must be a sense experience. Mm -hmm. Have you ever conceived of anything that you didn't see, hear, taste, smell, or at least imagine? In other words, think of a unicorn. The only reason you can think of a unicorn is because you saw a horse and you saw a narwhal, maybe a Nat Geo or something, and now you can combine the horse and the narwhal. It's very, everything you can imagine, I'll say, okay, that comes from this, this or that, this right? This is where we get into like HP Lovecraft. Yeah. He talks about things that are just totally incomprehensible. And it's like, I have no category of experience. For and that's because he has remixed and maxed and reconfigured everything, but you can trace it to things, you know? Sure, sure. You can say, you know, but the point being here is that every concept you have, every idea depends on a sense perception yeah. that sounds pretty materialistic right I mean, no this is actually the opposite of plato because he's saying concepts are you know but this is concepts there are no <laughs> concepts they depend on this thing it's almost like aristotle almost so okay here's this thing but now we get spooky we go further if the essence and by essence i mean that which is an inalienable property of a thing so what is inalienable to a label sense perception without sense perception there would not be a label let's go further what is the essence of a sense perception in other words, what do you need to have in order to have a sense perception? Awareness. That's a few steps down. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly senses. right. Senses. I need senses. If I didn't have it eyes. Needs to impress upon you. Yeah. Exactly. It, I need some kind of reception, some yeah. organ of reception. So sense perceptions depend on senses. What do my senses depend on? Your awareness. Correct. Awareness. That's the ultimate. And I would say mind, maybe. Mind, thought structure and what does my mind depend on awareness so in other words the essence of a label or a name is its sense perception the essence of the sense perception is the sense organ the essence of the sense organ is the mind to whom it occurs and the essence of the mind is the awareness that is aware of that cognition so this is to say that awareness gives rise to a mind a mind gives rise to a sense organ a sense organ gives rise to a sense perception and a sense perception gives rise to the world did you create the world or not obviously Obviously, not me, Nish, but awareness. It couldn't be the other way because we've proven it. When you say mind, did you just mean like like nervous system, that which perceives? I mean, nervous system is brain, right? I mean, mind is kind of like awareness plus a sense of self-referentiality. Yeah. So it's kind of awareness step down. What's the ego? Ego is part of the mind. Memory is part of the mind. My memory are different from your memories my ego i am this and you are that my intellect is different from your intellect you're smarter than me like these things um are minds that's what accounts for the difference minds are different not awareness so mind yes Uh, what's different between mind and awareness well well what how is mind different than body at that point like individual bodies yeah yeah i'm saying it's not become yeah body is in the mind yeah yeah i'm reducing the body to mind so yeah exactly you would say jiva just call it jiva, which is individual body-mind complex. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Individual experiencer. That's fine. Okay. Um, yeah, sure. Sure. Hardware and software. Why not? And uh, in this case, the software comes first. 
Yeah. It's like an AI that like creates a robot body for it oh, to take over the world. Okay, got to speed through now. Um, so we've got um, now this idea that you are the source of the world. And I actually mean now you. So it's true that if I close my eyes, um, Emily will still be there for Grace. You know, so Grace, look at Emily. I'm going to look at Emily now. I'm going to close my eyes. Grace, do you see her? Yeah, you do, right? So, okay, I can verify from Grace. I hear can Grace saying Grace? Yeah, I hear can Grace. Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear. So, I have to assume, okay, Emily is there for Grace. But there is a unique vantage point that Nish can have about Emily that none of you can have. I see Emily in a way that none of you can see. And similarly, you see Emily in a way that I can't see. Why? Because I have my own, like, kind of lens through which I'm looking. So, in that sense, awareness does have a unique experience of Emily and that experience is meaningfully terminated when I close my eyes. In other words, when Nish sees the perception, it is actually the end of something. You know, let's say when Emily's with me, you feel a certain way perhaps, like the vibe, right? If I die, this body goes, you won't feel that way anymore because there won't be anybody left to kind of, you know. There's no objective Emily. Yeah, right? Exactly. There's no... There's no, true, there's no true Emily. There's another kind of thing because mm. there's a Grace Emily, there's a Nish Emily and you kind of respond to what I'm putting out and all that. So importantly enough, the Emily that I create dies. The individual Emily dies. So there is in this sense, Emily being created uniquely by me as an individual perceiver. And the word in this tradition is pramata. Pramata, you know, individual um, perceiver. So as an individual perceiver, I created Emily. Why? Because there could not be an experience external to me coming to me, as we proved in the first part of the lecture. And as we proved just a few moments ago, there could not be an objective independent world for such a thing would be a logical impossibility. So instead, I'm left with the conclusion that everything is internal to awareness and awareness must be the source for all things. So when I open my eyes, I have just, in some sense, experienced a shishti. A creation. And this is even more interesting. I can choose to keep this experience alive for as long as I pay attention to it. This is called stithi. Notice that when someone breaks your heart and you think about it every day, your kind of thinking about it gives it energy, right? I mean, new age circles today have caught on to this idea that appears in these 9th century texts in Tantra. The idea that you are responsible for an event or an experience continuing. The persistence and enduring nature of an event is entirely your own doing. It's a radical kind of um, self empowerment, right? Empowerment. Yeah. yeah. Not in the not in the way we usually use empowerment. Exactly. It might even be politically incorrect to say, honestly, because I saw um, Who cares? Yeah. in Hollywood, I saw a billboard and it said, "I've I've never met someone who has not suffered deeply in some way, but I have met a few who have refused to be victims." I thought that was so great. Um, but yeah, that was just something I saw in Hollywood. Anyway, um, you're, you, it's not your fault. What happened to you happened to you. Sure. Actually, a very radical Shaiba would say yes. It not, not, it's not your fault. It's your play. Um, and we'll say why later. And that sounds crazy to say to someone and some people are not ready to hear that and yeah. we shouldn't say it to some people. It'd be wrong to say it to some people. Remember, this is something you say to people who have come quite We're a long way on their path. Yeah, I've been led. Hey, I, I'm going to guarantee this to you, okay? And Swami Brahmananda always says, my guru's 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 guru. He always says, if you practice every day for three or four years, and he means like three or four hours of meditation a day, and he says, and nothing happens, meaning you don't significantly make progress in life, come back and slap me. He would say that. Because it's a, it's a science. If you do this, if you do yoga every day, I guarantee you, you'll feel great in your body. You have something problem, something going on, do yoga. Doctors are suggesting it. You know, do your asana every day. Emily will teach you. Emily is the best yoga teacher I know. 
uh, you know, it's like a journey. Today's Pashimottanasana was like a journey. Each time we went down in different ways. Wah. So she'll, you know, if you do Hatha Yoga every day, you will actually see that most of your problems will be solved. You know how like sometimes we feel icky in the body? Like kind of like, oh, just like icky and lazy. You do Hatha Yoga, you'll never feel that again. Easy, simple fix. Actually, you don't really want that much in life. We don't really want God realization. We just want it to stop fucking hurting so much. Just a little piece of yeah, and that's not difficult, actually. All the bahirangas, the outer limbs of yoga will give that to you. If you live an ethical life, you won't have a lot of drama in your life. You know? Just follow the five yamas, you'll be fine. Won't be any drama. Um, and people will like you, so things will go nicely for you. Um, if you follow the five niyamas, like hygiene and stuff like that, you'll eliminate lots of problems. If you do asana every day, you'll have a kind of physical exuberance and an energy and a kind of lightness of being. They say health is the ability uh, not to feel the body. Right? When the body makes itself known, that's usually when health has gone off. Ah, I Yeah, if you do asana, you're using your body, but then the body goes away. You don't even, you feel like kind of like a cloud just moving through space. It's beautiful. And you do pranayama, wow, now you have emotional regulation. It's wonderful. So you just do these outer limbs and like done. So we are assuming now that you've done that. And no, not to put anybody in the spot, but this philosophy is often given to people who are usually kind of like content and happy. And it might actually be wrong to kind of present these philosophies too soon, especially in these radical places. But I just want to point it out. In a very radical sense, yeah, the things that did happen to you happened through karma, surely, um, but you were the cause of that. Vivekanandaji says beautifully, there was never a blow that was undeserved. And in that sense, you can kind of take back what happened to you because you'd say, I paid it, you know? I had a friend who, whenever she was having like something horrible happen, she'd be like, oh, thank God I get to pay this off. Yeah, my dad goes car broken into last week. Yeah. I was like, dude, I probably would have gotten a car accident. Right, exactly. Like, that's a good attitude, which is yeah. like, I got to pay this off. So, okay. Um, you, yeah, you maybe did it in the past, some cause, whatever. Now I'm not going that far. I'm not going to be as radical as we could be in this tradition. Instead, I'm just saying, while you might not be responsible for what happened to you, you are to be very clear, responsible for keeping that experience alive by constantly thinking about it, ruminating about it, talking to someone about it, ad infinitum, going on TikTok and posting about it every day and psychoanalyzing yourself and giving yourself new labels. That's all fine. And later I'm going to say that that's actually valuable. You know, so that that's fun too. But because um, the Shaiva philosophy is ultimately like, that's fun too. You like samsara? That's fun too. Yeah. You know, as you'll see, there's a very playful kind of twist that we get in the end. But for now, stithihi, it's up to you. You are the one who keeps every experience alive by your attention alone. And we can prove it. So I'm looking at Emily and I turn away from Emily. You know, notice, Emily, uh, it's, she's difficult to turn away from, right? Wonderful person. <laughs> but even then, I will get distracted and something on the screen, I'll be looking at the chat and be like, what are you guys talking about? Computers? What the? You know, like I'll get like kind of distracted by something and I'll forget about Emily, right? That happens. I'm, I'm going to come clean and admit that I have <laughs> forgotten about Emily a bit. Sometimes I'll like, be engaged in Jordan or something and be like, oh, Jordan, I think about basketball. I'm not thinking about Emily. <laughs> you know how they said the mind can only hold seven things at a time, something like that? Seven? You can only memorize seven. I don't know, like on average. Yeah, yeah. On average. Something, I don't know. It beats me. But some number. You can pay attention to seven things at one time. Or just hold, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, In either case, let's say either you can pay attention to seven things at once or you can hold seven objects. The important thing is there's a limit and if something new comes, it'll push the old thing out, right? Meaning, I have, in some sense, kind of shifted my attention away from Emily and that stithihi is no longer there. I'm no longer maintaining Emily and now 
closing the eyes is very important because let's try it again actually for this next point it's important that you see what happens when you close your eyes so now look at an object like take an object in the room and look at it take a deep breath as you look at it savor its color you know really kind of yeah the buddhist will tell you it's rapidly shifting focus right multitasking anyway take take stock of this um, object really see its color see its shape kind of think about what it means to you almost like texturally emotionally all of that take a deep breath and then close your eyes watch what happens and then open your eyes did you notice what happened was the object a physical object with color when you close your eyes wasn't there like a kind of residue like an impression of that object you just looked at in other words a physical object became subtler you feel it happening a physical object become subtler and then what happened to that subtle impression oh did you feel that the reabsorption the melting back into awareness this is key this is direct immediate evidence that not only do you create not only do you sustain but you are also reabsorbing destroying back into awareness so the word samhara means destruction but we could just as easily have said vimarsana which means a kind of dissolving Because isn't that how it felt? It just kind of went away. <laughs> so if God creates, maintains, and destroys, awareness is doing that in each and every experience. What about grace, though? What about? Oh, there's grace. What about? <laughs> hey, Shiva Ratri. Shiva, 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 Shambo. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> you know they say sleep deprivation is like a cult thing. Yeah, well, cult. <laughs> Shiva Ratri night. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. Um now grace, what is grace? Haven't you noticed that there are experiences that you do let go of? And there's a moment before the next experience, like a gap between one cognition and the next where you kind of land or touch down or settle into something intensely sweet and meaningful and beautiful. It probably happened in Emily's class, right? You were in Shavasana and then you just Something happened like you just for a moment had a widening gap between one thought and the next, one experience and the next and it was fucking awesome. Right? That's undeniable that it was mind-blowingly awesome like and in a way that it's not even that dramatic but it meant everything to you. It meant in fact it meant so much that you're willing to spend not only $135 a month at a yoga studio but also for your private yoga instruction you know like it's got to be worth something to you because one taste and you know haven't you noticed that it doesn't happen all the time you yeah, i should give you your money back right if you come here and sit and it doesn't happen but it doesn't happen and it's not in my control and it's not in yours often yeah. but it only needed to have happened once and yoga teachers will pay rent yeah. because that, that thing cannot be valued it's free it's available all the time but when something gives it to you that value is so valuable that yeah let's explain the multi billion dollar yoga industry right mm-hmm. all of la spiritual community is built off of that one taste of the space in between thoughts and here we are saying it's ever available to you it's not behind some paywall on patreon it's not behind some yoga studio what do you call it um fee you don't need a private Here I am, career assassination. <laughs> hey, foot. <laughs> but why? Because you know, money is nice. It pays the rent, it keeps the body alive. But should I be on the street in this body? Is it what's it to us? 
What is it to you who is awareness before the body, during the body, after the body, you know? So anyway, this feeling of sweetness, right now, we can together verify that it's valuable. But why? Why is it valuable? And you know, we are very wordy people, Indians, but we don't feel like we need to explain this point. We feel like it's self-evident. Awareness is not just awareness. It's also awareness bliss. Anisha in Nepal! You know, Shivalatri in Nepal! Jay Maheshwara! Welcome, Anisha. Anisha went to Nepal. Hi, I've missed you all so much. Just stopping in. I have class Welcome. in like two minutes, but happy Mahashivratri. Love you. Yes. Jay, Shiva Shambho. Okay, so uh, beauty. Beauty, joy, meaning, and awareness are synonymous. That's why in our language, we just call it Chidananda. Chid meaning consciousness, Ananda mean, meaning bliss, and Chid and Ananda are inseparable. Chid Ananda, and in fact, Chid implies existence. Nothing can exist without consciousness, as we just proved. So Sat Chid Ananda, we just call it that. But in fact, often in Tantra, you'll see it just called Chid Ananda, or just called Chitti, because that word Chitti, meaning consciousness, implies beauty, meaning joy. Okay, haven't you ever experienced something beautiful and, and, and considered what was beautiful about it? Right? I mean, like something, it's something we should be interested in. Truth, yes, but also beauty. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Oh, what is that? Uh, truth is beauty and beauty is truth. Ode to aggression earned. What is that? We should be excited about that. Okay, now let's say you're looking at a flower and the flower is beautiful. Was the flower beautiful? Yes. But... If the flower was beautiful, shouldn't other people who look at the flower also find it beautiful? But not always, right? Like some people do and some people don't. So the beauty couldn't have been in the flower. Something was there in the flower, but only you saw it. So hence the state, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We're going to take it some more further. We're not going to say it's just, oh, beauty is subjective. We're actually saying what was beautiful about the flower was not the flower, but the way that flower opened you up to the awareness in which that flower is sitting in that moment. So notice, all your experiences of beauty have, in some sense, been an experience of the timeless, aspatial kind of sense, and linguistic structures have collapsed. In other words, you're standing in front of a modern art piece, and you don't know what the fuck is going on here, so you can't, your meaning-making structure has broken down, and you're plunged into awareness. What about the beauty of a poem? Right. But, yeah, is beauty the word? I don't know. I like beauty. The beauty of language, I should just say. Yes. And it exists. Yeah, yeah. So I'm saying it takes you out of linguistic kind of things, right? A but rose is a rose is a rose. Yeah, yeah. But linguistic doors open too, right? Like we were talking, you can think your way into this place too, which hopefully we're doing now. Yeah. A lot of words are coming, but these words, all of them are doorways, hopefully, into at least a recognition. Finger at the moon. Yeah, finger at the moon. So now we have a theory, a working theory of beauty, which is beauty is not in the thing. Because if it was in the thing, Two observations. If it wasn't a thing, then everybody who sees the thing must have the same experience of beauty. But we know that's not true. And secondly, if it wasn't the thing, then that thing should be meaningfully able to reproduce beauty for you every time you saw it. Hi, darling. Now, notice that this doesn't happen, right? You go to a great rave, and the rave is awesome. Beautiful. And yeah, it was the best rave Beautiful. in the world. And you come home from the rave, and you look at your partner, and you're like, wasn't that awesome? And they're like, yeah, it was all right. That means that the rave wasn't itself beautiful. That's more important. You know, the rave wasn't itself beautiful. Um, you were beautiful and the rave brought the beauty out of you. You're not even beautiful, actually. I, I don't even mean to say that. Your beauty itself. 
You're the source. Awareness is the source from where beauty comes. So the rave wasn't beautiful for everybody at the rave. Now, let's say it was beautiful for you. Okay, fair enough. It's uniquely beautiful to you. Beauty is in the eye beholder. Go next year. Go to like hard summer or Coachella next year. Almost guaranteed it might be beautiful but in a different way and it might not be as beautiful as the first time. Heroin addicts call this chasing the dragon. But essentially, you can't reproduce your beauty, which shows you that the beauty wasn't in the thing. Because if it was in the thing, the thing would be a dependable and repeatable kind of uh, experience of beauty, right? So then what is the relationship to the thing? Because the thing triggers... Does it trigger the the experience of beauty within the eye of the beholder? Or does it trigger you... Somehow it, it unlocks something in you that allows yes. you to see the beauty that resides within it. Exactly. So to answer that question, what is the operative function here? Like what yeah, is it about the thing? Yeah. The answer is nothing. There was nothing uh, unique uh, about the thing that opened. So this means everything is beautiful because everything is a unique opportunity to experience awareness. You know what I'm saying here is I'm saying the world is not beautiful. It ain't diddly squat. I don't care about these cups. I don't care about these artworks. I don't care about these trees. Fuck them all. You know what I care about? Awareness. And it just so happens that looking at this goddamn tree opens me up to awareness. So I pray to the tree. Thank you, tree. But I don't ever make the mistake. And I shouldn't ever make the mistake that it's the tree. It's not. It's not the flower. It's not the tree. It's not the artist. It's not the yoga teacher. It's that that the yoga teacher symbolizes. It's that that the tree is standing in. Awareness, and I will argue, the recognition of awareness as awareness is the definition of beauty. So bliss, beauty, anytime you've experienced meaning or sacredness in your life, it's just awareness kissing herself. Awareness kissing awareness. And now we have some interesting suggestion, which is, we got objects in the room. All of them can be a moment of opening. And don't you have boredom, grief, fear, Sadnesses aren't these just as good as op- an opportunity as happiness, excitement? So why should you be afraid of getting your heart broken? It will be beautiful. You know, when your heart gets broken and you really kind of go there and feel it in your body, I'm not saying you're going to be happy. I'm, going to, I'm saying you're going to be blissful. You know? So just last week, for instance, um, I was torn up about something. I, my heart was hurting about Sangha. You know, I was like, oh, well, are we being responsible here? You know, like, there, I've, I, in meeting some kind of uh, opposition, resistance, some conversations, I'm thinking, oh, this is getting, it feels heavy sometimes, you know? And it's only now started to feel like, it's never before felt that way, but now recently, I click a tag at everyone, and it gives me this message, are you sure you want to send this to, and then it inserts the number of people in the Discord, I'm like, no, I'm not sure I want to send it to that many people. I want to send it to my friends, these people that I love, that I want to share this life with. You know, I'm not sure that I quite want, um, you know, what is happening now, what is emerging. Um, And there's a danger, there's all sorts of danger, like danger for name and fame, danger, like all these things that I know as a spiritual practitioner I should avoid. So of course, I'm feeling kind of torn up about it, right? Would I trade that experience? Of course not, it was beautiful. What a beautiful thing, right? To kind of sit together on the floor here and be like, damn. And what was beautiful about it was that grace, recognizing my kind of like, oh, kind of feeling, you know, which I hadn't felt in a while. And, and grace, when she recognized that, went home and texted me so sweetly, Nish, you should read the Gita. It was that experience that showed me the meaning of friendship. And not only that, it's like, there's something kind of like in the Southern mentality, right? Like that Southern home mentality, like, read the Bible. If that, if, no, I know, I know that thinking about it, I was like, we were talking about like demons and kind of like how other people's demons can sometimes, you know, infect you and and not only that the scary thing is that when you interact with someone who's very dark and kind of 
in their own place, you can catch that and you can take it to someone else. You know what I mean? The most important thing in this life is a genuine human connection. What ended up happening was I lost that with someone. I was talking to someone and lost the genuine human connection because we got into, um, what is it, like some mind world, you know? And I was in that mind world when I went to see Grace. In other words, I was holding a knife, kind of an appropriate reference given last Shivaratri, but I was holding a knife oh, yeah. and I forgot to put it down when I went to see my friend for lunch. And do you know what happened? She got cut. In other words, being in that situation and being kind of mind-oriented caused me to be mind-oriented when I spoke to Grace, causing me to lose entirely the texture of that moment, you know, which is awful. What a wasted lunch, but, you know. And then, (laughs) I paid for it too. (laughs) With all this yoga teacher money, bling, bling. (laughs) It's okay, as long as awareness is beautiful, I'm going to pay rent. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, and that happened, right? So then we, we talked about it and it was painful to kind of confront that that happened and that I was responsible for hurt feelings like, oh, I, I didn't come. And it was painful. And then um, because of all of that, Grace texts me, like, read the Gita. How beautiful. Like all of these things happen and they're all beautiful. Every step of it is beautiful. But what's beautiful about it is the constant retouching into awareness. Don't you think that whole drama then was meaningful only insofar that there was an awareness to hold it? That gives life and the drama of it an inherent meaning and a beauty. You know, anyway. So that is to say that um, everything is an opening into beauty, even grief, even boredom. So, you know, some people here in America think that I wear a turban with a jewel in it. And that I'm going to tell them their future, you know, like, come look at the cars. I will tell you your future. Look at the crystal ball. Like, cool, cool. Have you seen the love guru? But anyway, um, some people think, and and you know what? I'm going to do that right now. Why not? I'm going to tell you all your future. I'm going to put the turban on, put the jewel. Okay, ready? Light some incense, sitar music. Your future, what will happen to you from this point on will be awesome. It's always going to be beauty. That's it. Mm, that's the tantric prediction because yeah, maybe you'll lose your car, maybe you'll maybe it'll be cancer. I don't know. That's life, right? But um, it will still be beautiful. So one thing that's guaranteed, and and song, your recognition of this was so interesting, which is like I've dealt with things before. I can deal with things after. So if I lose a loved one, that would suck, but it won't break me. That's strength, right? And add to that the feeling of well, it will also be meaningful to me, because when I lose someone, that grief will deepen me. Oh. Oh my God, losing loved ones, one of the hardest experiences in life. Beautiful, right? Like, the feeling of, that used to be a person in my life, and they're not here anymore. That shouldn't stop feeling sad. I mean, wow, it's, it's hard, huh? But beautiful. But beautiful. Death and birth. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of what you said, or I think you were talking about this at some point, about like, the actor who delights in yes, the yes, tragedy, like, yes. it's like you're really like right. fucking yourself up and ah, like reveling in it. Exactly. So what this should feel like is that, because you're an actor, Emily, and you would appreciate, because, um, you know, today was about the dancing Shiva, and this is all about the dancing Shiva, because now all of this is going to culminate in Shiva, in this image. All of this will be expressed by Shiva, because the dancing Shiva, at the end of the day, is an actor. Like, he's a dancing Shiva, but one thing you need to know about Indian theater is that it's a dance production, actually. Dance poetry, right? It's like music, Michael is a sitar player. So it's music, um, and you do a dance, and the dance enacts, yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll tell you in just a minute. Uh, the, and also Kali, I, I got that, the breaking of the boards. Ah, we gotta do it. So, okay, hyperdrive mode. 
And so, <laughs> dancing Shiva mode. Okay, so um, the uh, the the dance of Shiva is Shiva acting. So how this should feel? If you know this, if you know that awareness ultimately is you, and you aren't you, then you can play you with a radical honesty and meaning that is joyful. Because can you imagine if um, and my guru loves this stuff. This is my guru's I think favorite kind of thing to teach. You know, and he's always talking about this in his sweet inimical way. But he would always say. If you went to a play or a production and the person who's supposed to play the role of like an angry person was instead just a yogi sitting and meditating. <laughs> and if, you know, time came to be angry, they were like, instead of saying, I am William Wallace, you know, instead of saying that, they were like, oh, peaceful, ahimsa. The play would flop. And if the yogi was so, like suddenly got angry and like fulfilled all his lusts and greed, play would flop. Because the role attributed to each person is just that, a role in this divine play that's being enacted for fun. The director is Shiva, the actors are Shiva, the um, audience is Shiva, you're the stage. <laughs> Your Jiva is the stage upon which all of this is enacted. For who? For Shiva. Who are you? Shiva. Yes. So would you say the, kind of the, the end goal of like Shaivism then is just like a, it's almost like an intoxicating... Yes. Intensity of beauty. Yes, like you got it. Smiling. And exactly. Ecsta ecstatic. Yeah, yes, like you should be ecstatic, but not a weirdo on the Ganges, unless that's your karma. Yeah. You should be like a stockbroker or an accountant or a sober-faced mom. You know, not Song. Song is one of those ecstatic Ganga people, but like a sober-faced mom, and that should be as ecstatic to you. In fact, nothing should change about the what of your life. Right? Everything should change about the how, as Song is saying. So that's the disappointing thing about spiritual life. You think that this will radically change everything. It will, but not in the way that we think. We might just go on being the same people that we, we are, except it will be a joyous and fearless life. So you will play your role with gusto, but never will you buy into that role. Think of the joy that an actor feels playing in Game of Thrones, the role of getting stabbed at the Red Wedding, you know, in season three. I mean, the actor is like, I'm pregnant, oh, my baby just got cut out of my... It's horrible. But in that moment, while the actor is really mirroring that and probably really feeling it, like someone said in the chat, method acting, it's to them enlivening, ecstatic art, joyous, right? So that's what life will feel like, a joyous and fearless expression of art um, when you uh, kind of get to the end of this goal. So uh, to illustrate this point, once, Ramana Maharshi, we have to talk about Ramana Maharshi now. Ramana Maharshi was asked by someone, uh, don't I need to move to the mountains and sit and meditate all day? And Ramana Maharshi was saying to them, no, 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 no. You can do it just as easily from where you are as a housewife. She's a housewife, actually. And you know what she said? Well, it, her, her response, beautiful. Something that only a snappy Indian housewife could do. And she said, well, oh, so you can do it anywhere? Then why are you meditating in a cave, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, if, you're, if your message, Ramana Maharshi, is that anybody everywhere, even householders, can attain to this state of non-duality, then the fuck you're doing under the... Yeah, she didn't quite say it like that. But she's like, Why, what are you doing in the mountain? And you know what he said? He said, mother, this is my karma and that is yours. Isn't that interesting? It's a Shaiva response. Mother, this is my karma and that is yours. So for some reason, Ramana Maharshi's karma is to be an Arunachala and... Uh, that mother's karma is to be a housewife. And that doesn't matter when it comes to enlightenment and realization, which is exciting because my dear brother Satya just came in here somewhere. Where is Satya? Satya came. So where is Satya? Ah, brother. Hello, brother. Ah, Jai Shiva Shampoo. Hey, Satya, muted, muted, muted. Yes. 
beautiful. Okay, so it's nice because we're just talking now about the radical realization of Shaivism is the Leela of Shiva. Now, the important thing here is you are a bronze, a gold statue. Shiva is a gold statue. You, the statue, the gold statue of you is not the same as the gold statue of Shiva. So you cannot say that I am Shiva. You can't really say Shiva Ham as you, you know, as a Daniel, as a Nish. Cannot. Because how can you say the gold statue of you is the same as the gold statue of Shiva? That's a fact, right? So when I say now that all of this is your play, we're not at all talking about you, the individual, because the play might outright suck to the individual. Grief, loss of a loved one, sickness, the individual might resist the play. But the awareness that is projecting and emanating this play, it is the delight and joy of that awareness. So when you look at the Shiva Nataraja, you have to remember that he's the dancer, but he's, he's an actor. In Indian theater, dancing is acting. So he sometimes has to play bad roles like Game of Thrones, Red Wedding, and he has to play those roles well. But even in his grief, even in his suffering, it's not suffering, it's joy, it's ecstasy. So the goal of uh, tantric tribism then is not peace as much as it is a kind of enlivened, ecstatic, intense state, you see? So now, um, Tana, can you see how we made the cultural shift from the meditating Shiva, which Swami Nikolanandaji called the a formless absolute of the Vedas to the ecstatic dancing Kali and Shiva of Tantra. Why? The Vedic tradition, and I'm so happy Satya is here because now we can talk about that. The Vedic tradition and the Upanishadic tradition emphasizes above all renunciation. So Shankara, his main message was, look, if you're trying to be enlightened and you're living in the world, it's like trying to cross a river, mistaking a crocodile for driftwood and holding on to it. It's not going to happen for you. Ramakrishna Paramahansa, Sri Ramakrishna says over and over again, if you live in a house full of soot, your clothes will become sooty and smoky. You know, you, it's like renunciation is it's so smooth. It's so beautiful. Shankara is saying do that. The Upanishad, Mundaka, Mundaka means to shave your head. So you're getting this kind of, the Shiva of the renunciants is uh, the formless, absolute meditation, renunciation. The Shiva of the Tantrikas, remember in this tradition, a lot of householders. So Abhinava Gupta, householder. Shemaraja, householder. Ramakanta, householder. A lot of householders, right? And for them, they are in the world and they are playing roles. They have a kind of duty to their wives. Abhinava had two of them, I think. <laughs> duty to their, um, like, kind of, they had wives, plural. Duty to their children, they had plenty. Um, and so they had these roles to play. And the thing about being in the world is that there's a lot of bullshit in it, right? People will die, things like all that. All, and then, uh, this philosophy is helping us now see, oh, I did shishti. You saw that. I closed my eyes. When I opened it, awareness poured forth that experience. I did sittahi because as long as I pour my attention into a thought, I'm keeping it alive. And when I close my eyes, I feel that image turning into its subtle form and I feel it melt and dissolve. So I am doing um, samhara. So now we can understand this verse. Tattapi tadvat. Even as a worldling, even as a samsarin, you at your level are still performing the five acts of God, which is creation, maintenance, dissolution, grace, and the opposite of grace, right? So this can show you that awareness and God are one thing. And therefore, we can say that Kali, Shiva, can be called Chitti. That's why Kashema Raja says in that verse, Chitti Svatantriya, awareness. And then he says, awareness, Chitti, can be called Shiva or Shakti or Kali. He says, all these names mean what I'm talking to you about, awareness. So whenever you see awareness and God kind of make into one thing, you can see that it's a non-dual tradition. So Kashema Raja is a non-dual tradition. Okay, now, 
what is grace? We just said, right? Awareness is intrinsically beautiful. So whenever awareness is aware of awareness, you will feel joy, meaning, beauty. So Shiva, when he reveals himself to himself, that is a moment of grace. So you have a choice now. At the end of my sentence now, you can either choose to rest in the formless awareness to whom this sentence is appearing, or you can start thinking about other stuff. Try it. It's obviously not so easy, but at least for a moment, did you not feel that? Try it again now. Inhale. Isn't that beautiful? Just a gentle look between the thoughts. And so grace, according to Shaivism, is defined as such. Whenever you're able to rest in pure awareness between one thought and another, between one experience and another, God reveals herself to God. This is prakasha vimarsha. And what is the opposite of grace? Getting involved in some new thought, some new experience. So if you decide to continuously involve yourself in the drama of your life, that's God hiding himself from himself. For what? For fun. So the ultimate claim then is that awareness is performing five functions. God is performing five functions. God and awareness are both therefore one and the same. Everything you see around you is internal to what? Internal to you. And therefore you are not different from anything. Everything is part of one non-dual field of experiencing. And the point of it all is just fun just joy. Does it frustrate you to know that Shaivism argues for a meaningless world? Play is meaningless. There's no objective or goal to play. You play just for the sake of playing. Art is meaningless. You don't make art to cause social change. I mean, <laughs> you make art just to enjoy art for its own sake. Why do you do spiritual practice and meditate? Because enlightenment? No, actually, according to Shaivism, because spiritual practice is in and of itself fun. It's fun to do even without the promise of enlightenment. You know, of all the people who practice spirituality, how few of them get enlightenment? Does that mean that people will stop practicing spirituality? Of course not. It's intrinsically fun. So if you get to the end of your life, having devoted yourself to spiritual life and not attained enlightenment, would you have lost anything? Arguably not. It would have been a beautiful life, a joyous life. How much fun and adventure it would have been. So that is to say that everything that happens is happening through you, is pouring forth from you, from Shiva into the world that is none other than Shiva for Shiva's own delight. So who are we to get in the way of any of this? True devotion then, true devotion to Shiva is the complete self-surrender and the accepting that everything right now is exactly as it should be for it is she how long the game
vibration of it all. And you should know that in this tradition, all of this is a vibration. You know, can you see the Nataraja? Yeah. Head represents a Sanskrit Malini Vigayotara in Tantra. Why? Because she is the goddess garlanded in letters. The idea here is that each letter is a matrika, a mother that gives birth to the world. Linguistics, the language we use, gives rise to what we can experience, not just on a conceptual level, but on a phonetic level. That's why beach mantras are important. They don't mean anything, but they create stuff, you know, they're like essential. Okay, so if language is important, then Shiva beating the Damaru gives the rhythm for Sanskrit meters, you know. So Panini, the great writer, uh, codifier of Sanskrit, in a vision saw Shiva beating the Damaru and he kind of codified Sanskrit through that.